I guess there are some things I just wasn't meant to understand. And maybe that's okay. I'll get to that in just a moment. Because if anyone can clear it up for me, if anyone can help me make sense of it and understand it better, I know that someone is you. I count on you for these things, you know. It's one of my favorite parts of the job. I can come to work with questions and then you can provide the answers, you smarty pants, you. But I wanted to start by going back to an email I received from a friend of mine last night. And look, I was a little bit reluctant to start wading into the weather game yesterday because you may recall, and again, this show is about accountability, transparency, responsibility. Back in November, when there was talk about a pretty significant snowfall, I said, pshaw. Here in the region? No, no. Our friends up in northern Wellington County, maybe around Arthur, would get the snow. Us here in the region? Don't worry about it. So said I. And how wrong was I about a month ago when that happened? I, I was really wrong, is the answer. And I should have just let the weather people do the weather forecasting and let me do the talking and the commentating and all of the other things. But I will confess to raising a Spockian eyebrow yesterday when I received the winter weather travel advisory that was put into effect, including for our region, because brace yourself, we were about to get local snowfall accumulations of two to six centimeters. Are you kidding me? Two to six centimeters, and we need a winter weather travel advisory in effect. And so the email from my buddy Phil, we now get a weather advisory for two to six centimeters of snow? Geez, our family's 1976 Caprice would push through a foot of Alora back road snow with the bias ply CT snow tires, I think that's Canadian tire, and rear wheel drive. We've become soft, my friend. Can I blame Trudeau for this? Both of them. <laughs> Phil, thanks to the, for the email to Mike at 570news.com. I do worry. I do, just a little bit. Like, I, I think I get it. It's almost like, well, if you don't warn us at all, how were we ever to know that some wintry weather was on the way? Do we blame? Are we allowed to somehow hold liable our weather forecasters? I don't know. But I personally would like to see the threshold just a wee bit higher. Like two to six centimeters? Come on with your coming on here. I say, I say, if it was Farwell forecasting... Farwell's forecast says anything over 10 centimeters we'll give you a warning about. But 2 to 6 centimeters? I don't know about that. Anyway, nice dusting we got overnight. Looks better, though. It really does. Just even that little coating on the ground looks better than the rather dreary, gloomy, gray, wet we had yesterday. Sadly, this won't last. Let's go to the phones. They're always open to you. Paul is with us. Good morning, Paul. Morning. I just got one thing for you. Uh, are you? Wait a minute. Is it is it a thing that I perhaps have heard before? Do you think that's possible? Possibly. Uh, does it sound? Hang on. Does it sound anything like this? This whole amalgamation thing sucks. Amalgamation sucks. <laughs> go go home. Go back home. I just hung up on Paul. I I don't know why you got to be that way, Paul. Listen. 
we were this close, and I am holding my thumb and my forefinger so close together right now. We were this close to finally, finally getting somewhere in this region when it comes to how we are governed, how we are structured, how we are organized. And sadly, the ship sailed away, and we were not on board. And now even Peel, which was being dissolved, is not being dissolved, and oh well. Regional governance is here to stay. I really meant what I said when I was chatting with Christine Clark just before 9 o'clock. I'm starting to wonder if I will see either of those things in my lifetime. Like, this could be a really serious bet. Which comes first, if either? In my lifetime. I, I say I'll be lucky to get 30 more years before I shake free from this mortal coil. So within 30 years, will I see either A a Toronto Maple Leafs Stanley Cup victory, or B, an amalgamated region of Waterloo. One big Waterloo. Will I see either of those things in my lifetime? I don't know, but I'm starting to have my doubts. Okay, here's the thing that perhaps you can help me better understand, because I'm I'm trying to wrap my head around it, and I use wrap deliberately. In this regard, story in this morning's paper, uh, front page of the Waterloo Region record, telling us that the Ion light rail trains will not be wrapped with advertisements after all. Now, you may remember when this proposal first came forward, and there was a fair bit of hand-wringing associated with it. How dare you take our world-class transit system and wrap it with advertisements? To which I responded, we're going to get $500,000 for wrapping those trains with advertisements. The $500,000 can be invested in the transit system, keeping fares where they are, and helping to improve transit. What is not to like about that? But for whatever reason, we were rather concerned that this would be some kind of degradation or dilution of our system and its brand. And again, I would submit to you that the only way you dilute a brand of a transit system is by the transit system not functioning well. If it gets you where you want it to get you and it runs on time, that is what makes the brand of a transit system, in my opinion. Anyway, the region has decided that it's not going to put advertising wraps on Ion light rail trains. It will only put the wraps on buses. It still intends to raise $500,000 of revenue through this. So, cool. You're still getting the revenue. Here's, here's though, where it starts to break down a bit for me. So they, they do a survey because, you know, people were saying, this is awful. We can't have the trains wrapped with advertisements. And 27% of those surveyed were opposed to the advertising wraps. 27% opposed. 47% were in favor. Okay, I want to just be clear on the numbers here. 47% are in favor. 27% are opposed. And yet, the nays get it. The 27% who are opposed, I, I suppose, is enough in opposition to lose the advertising wraps on Ion Light Rail, even though 47% were in favor. Okay. Further, as I shared this this morning on the good old X machine, I was told that 
there should be no wraps on trains or buses because it looks awful and it provides an awful experience for transit users. Looks awful? Sure. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But how does an advertising wrap make for an awful experience for transit users? Does the bus or train run differently when there's an advertising wrap around it? Is your seat less comfortable? Does it slow the train or bus down so that it does not arrive at its destination on schedule? No, no, and no, you, you know this. So how, how does it make for an awful experience? I don't get it. If you get on board the bus or the train and it's running on time and it gets you where you want it to take you, what else does it matter? And by the way, newsflash, if you've ever been on board a bus or a train, which I have, ain't nobody looking out the window. These are not sightseeing tours. These are commuter vehicles. They're, they've got their noses buried in their phones because somebody else is doing the driving. So I just, I just struggle with that. How does having an advertisement on the outside of the transit vehicle provide an awful experience for the person inside the transit vehicle? I do not understand this, but maybe you can help me figure it out. I'm just glad that the region's still getting its 500000 in revenue. Simple as that. Sarah is on the phone with us this morning. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. It's funny that you brought this um, topic up about the weather, because I woke up this morning, I looked out the window. You expected six centimeters, didn't you? Exactly. And there was <laughs> nothing. And I'm like, what's going on? Six centimeters. I expected to look a lot more. But anyways, I don't think they should be allowed to, um, to do this. And my husband always says, we used to be in the restaurant here, and what happens is when they put these hoardings on, the whole restaurant cancels all the reservations. These, you know, these companies lose, right? And my husband used to always say, it's the insurance companies. They're telling them to put this on the radio. That's... I'm like, maybe he's right. <laughs> That's so interesting. So I was wondering, is there a liability if the weather people don't tell us that we're going to get two to six centimeters, oh, heaven forbid. Right? But you're saying from the other side, as a business owner, people might cancel their reservations because they're too afraid to go outside. Well, they are. They're canceling, and then the economy suffers, right? These small business owners. And it's kind of like, why? well, why would they say that you can't drive in two centimeters? It's, you know what I mean? Like, okay, you could say that we're expecting snow, but okay, we're expecting some snow and some high wind. You don't have to scare people on travel warning and this and that over two centimeters. I mean, we live in Canada. We live in if we live in uh, Africa. Well, yeah, sure, but we live in Canada. We should expect it. <laughs> Sarah, it sounds like you are made of good stuff. You are my kind of people. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for you the call. Have a great day. Thanks. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I love it. You know, this phrase came up in the Farwell household over a really spirited conversation at dinner last night. It's about the economy, stupid. So the weather advisories are about the economy. The $500,000 in revenue you can generate from putting advertisements on trains and buses, it's about the economy. I just still can't figure out how the advertising wrap on the outside provides an awful experience for the user on the inside. But maybe it's just one of those unanswerable questions, the impossible puzzle. Beats the hell out of me. It's the Mike Farwell Show. Good morning, City News 570.
I cannot tell a lie. There has been more than one occasion since I began this show more than six years ago that I've poked a little bit of fun at the name of said show. Oftentimes, I'll refer to it as the insert show host's name here show because once they roll my cranky old bones out of here, what happens? It becomes the Joe Blow show or whomever. Maybe it's the Jane Blow show. I don't know, but whatever the next name is in the chair will be the name of the show, presumably. Unless, unless you're like Rob Snow and your name really rhymes with something cool, so you can be now you know with Rob Snow. Like, what the hell rhymes with Farwell anyway? I also feel as though it might be a little bit on the vain side, so I just want to remind you, twas not my idea. They said, hey, Farwell, you want to do a talk show? I said, that'd be kind of cool. Neat. We're going to call it the Mike Farwell Show. I say, you know what? You are the most creative people I've ever met. Put me on the air, and let's have the Mike Farwell Show, shall we? I bring all of this up by way of the most popular baby names in the province of Ontario in 2023. And and it occurs to me, as I look down the list of names, that number one on the boys list is something that is very familiar to me and actually caught my attention just the other day. Listen, what is the engineer doing in there when I'm trying to talk to my producer? Like, we're in the middle of a live show here. I wanted to talk to him. What are you doing over there? It's okay, Mike. I'm just teasing. I'm just giving him a hard time. I told Devin during the commercial break, I said, hey, we're going to talk about names here for a minute. What's what's going on in there? Actually, we're, we're sorting out getting uh, a guest the number to call us. That's what that was about. How did he know? I, he came in. He said, a guest that's on today's show, I'm looking at it, is asking <laughs> for the number. And I was like, yeah, I guess that's, I can give that a critical rating of the, value. The engineers know everything. It, yeah, that's all powerful. I better be more careful with the emails I send and the things <laughs> I say not on the air. That's wild. So he's in there disturbing you during a live show because he knows our guests, and he's trying to arrange a number. Yeah, I guess a guest, I don't know how, a guest called him. Him? Yeah, no, no. See, a guest called, and the engineer just knows that the guest called. Yeah, okay. And especially Mike is, I've known him my entire time here. That boy is wacky smart. Wacky smart. Okay, I wanted to ask generally, Devin, how do you feel about your name, Devin? Devin? I'm, I'm pretty okay with it. If I get a nitpick about it, I don't care that it's spelled with an O, but it is spelled with an O, D-E-V-O-N. Mm, interesting. So you get Devon. <laughs> really? Yeah, you get a lot of Devon. And I, my general rule of thumb is I'm okay with Devon, but I'm Devin Robertson, which ends S-O-N. So you need to be consistent with the O. So I'm either Devin Robertson or Devon Robertson. <laughs> I like that. Do you mind? Would it be okay? If I heretofore and henceforth refer to you as Devon Robertson. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of cool. It's kind of <laughs> cool. So I'm a Mike, obviously. And I've always said that we're a dime a dozen. Like when I was in school, every kid was named Mike or every other kid, it seemed, right? Which is sort of why, as I got older, I started to default more towards my last name. Farwell, because sure. it distinguishes me a little bit more from all of the other mics. Oh, I, know, I know a lot of mics still. I think you're lovely people. I love my name. I really do. As vain as that sounds, I think it. I just it's 
one of my favorite names. I would name all of my kids Mike if I had lots of kids. I just like the name that much. But it was too common. Plus, again, I cannot tell a lie. There's something about the Farwell family mafia and the street cred that the name has in this community. So I'm (laughs) like, I am totally borrowing. I'm riding your coattails. Uncles, aunts, parents, you name it. I'm riding the coattails of the Farwell family clan here. For sure. But... Mike, I, I love, I just kind of went away from it. And it was so common back in the day. People now, it seems to me, try very hard to have a name that's distinct, different, mm. unique. Whatever. And I don't, am I, I don't know. I feel like, why try so hard? It's just, it's just the name that you give somebody. Yeah, I mean... It's it's also a big deal, right? Like you're giving them the name, the name, the name that they're gonna have for the presumably the rest of their life. I mean, you can change it for sure. Could. See, if if I had been named Devin, I would have changed my name to Mike. No offense, I just <laughs> really? like Mike that much. Sorry, that's, Devon. That's funny. I'd uh, vice versa. Had I been Mike, <laughs> I'd have been like, no, no, no. This is Devon. Exactly. I'm Devon <laughs> from now on. Top five baby names in Ontario in 2023. Sophia comes in at number five. Emma at number four, Amelia at number three, Charlotte at number two, and Olivia at number one. I don't know anybody named any of those things. I've met a few Emmas. Okay. But I guess the next generation will just be an abundance with Olivia's. Right. Where are the Devons and Mikes these days? On the boys' side, Jack at number five. I had an Uncle Jack. Theodore. Boy, you better be Ted, though. Come on. Theodore. Yeah. Uh, Theodore at number four. Oliver at number three. Liam at number two. And the number one boy's name is Noah, last year in Ontario. I'm not surprised at all by the Noah. I usually take the pulse of popular names by the names I see or hear or pronounce during Kitchener Rangers games. Mm. And we went on a little run uh, close to a decade ago now with Connors. There were so many Connors in the league. (laughs) Well, it it wasn't lost on me not too long ago. The Rangers played the Guelph Storm, and the Guelph Storm featured three Bradens on the team. Braden Gillespie, the goaltender, Braden Hislop, the defenseman, and Braden Bowman, the Kitchener native and captain. Three Bradens on the Guelph Storm roster. The next night... For the next game, we played the Brantford Bulldogs. Three Noahs, the most popular name in Ontario. They got Noah Nelson. They got, uh, where are there other Noahs here? They got Noah Van Vliet. And they got, there's another Noah in here somewhere. I'm missing him. Uh, there were three Noahs on the team, though. So we went from three Noahs to three, or from three Bradens to three Noahs on back-to-back games. I'm like, what an interesting time this is. Yeah. But you know the popular names just by looking at the rosters of the hockey teams. There you go. That's the trick. And Noah is the most popular boy's name in Ontario in 2023. Good job, parents. There he is, Noah Roberts. That was the other one on Brantford. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Look at that. Somebody found Mike Farwell's off switch. He's off for a few minutes. But the Mike Farwell Show returns after this on City News 570. Simulcast on Rogers TV.
I suppose the idea is that they're supposed to help people quit smoking. However, what seems to be happening, perhaps as an unintended consequence, is that they're introducing younger people to nicotine. I'm talking about flavored nicotine pouches that are now on the market, and not all of them are regulated in any way by Health Canada. So what does this mean for nicotine consumption and rates particularly among youth in our community? Karen Howie is a public health nurse here in the region and joins us to talk about it. Karen, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you very much for making the time to talk about something that I was hitherto completely unaware of. I did not know that these pouches existed. Can you can you tell us more about them? What is a flavored nicotine pouch? Well, for sure. And I would share, too, that I was not aware of these till about a month ago myself. Uh, so basically, the nicotine pouches are little pouches that uh, do not contain tobacco, um, and they contain nicotine and some fiber pouches, and they typically contain about four milligrams of nicotine. And how they're used is they're sold in a, in a container, and you place uh, one in between your lip and your gum, and then the nicotine gets absorbed uh, that way. And as you mentioned in your uh, intro, they come in all kinds of different uh, flavors, such as berry frost, chill mint, and tropical breeze. Yeah, so berry frost and tropical breeze, I mean, that almost sounds like it's being marketed to young people. I mean, you could certainly make that argument, I suppose. Uh, for sure. I mean, uh, we are um, constantly aware of new and emerging products, and this certainly is one of those. Um, and again, we have to be aware of uh, the appeal to young people. And as you mentioned as well, these are not um, the way it got approved through Health Canada. If they have no regulation and they do not come under the Smoke-Free Ontario Act or um, any other tobacco legislation um, across the country. And so because of that, um, anybody can purchase them. So certainly as a parent myself um, and, uh, and uh, you know, and of course what I do in terms of uh, preventing young people from uh, starting uh, to um, use any type of nicotine product, this is a concern for sure. Are they at all or were they originally intended at all, Karen, as a smoking cessation tool? So that is how they are marketed. There is a warning uh, that is on the packaging that says you you uh, must be 18 years of age, uh, or not that you must. It says uh, you are 18 years of age. Let me just read it. Uh, warning not to use if you are under the age of 18 and that they are uh, designed as a nicotine replacement therapy. Um, and so I guess in response to that, with uh, smoking cessation, the 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 most effective way to quit smoking um, is to use nicotine replacement therapy or prescription medications that have been um, studied. And so the patch, nicotine gum, uh, lozenges, those all double a person's chances of quitting. And they are available for uh, for free um, at stopontheNet.ca. Um, and so certainly uh, those would be the first uh, line uh, that we would suggest people use if they are thinking about quitting smoking, as well as talking to their healthcare provider. I um, have not seen any evidence as to the effectiveness of these products on uh, helping people quit smoking. 
It sounds to me a little bit like the cart is way out in front of the horse here with these products now on the market, largely in an unregulated manner. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. And over the the last month or so, there's been a lot of advocacy that has been happening from some key organizations across the country to uh have Health Canada review um, and perhaps put a pause on the, the sale of these until there can be appropriate regulation. And um, if the companies that are selling these um, um, are uh, clear that they aren't intended to uh, be sold to you, then I, then I would think that they would be in agreement with that. Are you aware at all, is there any data to tell us how many young people under the age of 18 may be using these flavored nicotine pouches? Yeah, and so this is new and emerging. I, I I saw an article about a month ago, and then um, I had two teenagers, and uh, they came home and were talking about this as well. So anecdotally, I have some information that a lot of people are are a lot of youth um, using uh, are using them. I know our uh, enforcement officers have also uh, seen um, and have been speaking to to schools about it. They've been seeing them um, in retail. Um, locations um, and then they've been uh, also kind of talking to their colleagues so again we're continuing to gather information about um, uh, you know the prevalence of this uh, but again as it continues to be sold um, and as there is no limitations on who can purchase them I anticipate that this will become again a new and popular um, uh, product for 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 youth to, to try and, and use um, yeah, and because it's it's a, a pouch, you don't have to spit. Uh, you, there is no smell, right? Again, it's very discreet and very convenient um, for uh, for use, um, especially um, to use. It, it sounds a little bit like it might really, Karen, end up being a, a gateway then to further nicotine use, right? Because it could develop that addiction to nicotine at a younger age. For sure, right. right. So any nicotine product, right? We used to think, oh, it was just cigarettes, and right over the um, the last years, we've seen vapes uh, with nicotine. Um, and again, these products certainly are are very appealing to young people, right? And one of the best things that we can do is to is to help uh, young people not to get addicted to nicotine to begin with. And so again, this is a starting point. Um, and any you know any nicotine um, exposure can can lead to addiction, and that certainly is a concern for us. What tools does the region of Waterloo, through public health, make available to help people who are trying to quit smoking, Karen? Uh, for sure. So, um, in terms of as I mentioned before, right, nicotine replacement therapy, uh, in terms of the patch gum and lozenges, uh, are one of the best ways to quit smoking, and they are available. You can get ten weeks free of the patch by uh, going to stopontheNet.ca. Um, you can also just type in your into your browser, uh, "quit smoking region of Waterloo Public Health," and we have a number of different resources on our website around the steps that you can start to take thinking about um, why you want to quit um, and, and that type of thing. So uh, certainly uh, there are lots of different resources if you're looking for telephone counseling or online support. All of that information is listed there. And I'm not surprised. I I, sorry. No, please. <laughs> Yeah, and I guess the one thing I would say is uh, just be patient with yourself. Uh, quitting takes practice, um, as with um, 
many uh, changes that we often try to do to become healthier. And the new year is a wonderful time for people to, to have a fresh start. And we often see people uh, wanting to quit smoking. So, um, yeah, by all means, uh, yeah kind of leading up to the new year is a great time for people to start thinking about that. Absolutely. And I'm not surprised at all that these resources are available through public health here in the region of Waterloo, because we pioneered here in this region what became the Smoke-Free Ontario Act. We started it all about 20 plus years ago. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Aren't you believed? (laughs) No kidding. You know, I think back on those days prior to 2000 or so when, you know, you go into a restaurant or whatever and they're you know, is smoking inside that building. It's it's a foreign concept these days. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, and our youth have no, well, they, they don't have any memory of that because uh, it, it, isn't, it isn't their experience for sure. Sure. So what would your overarching message be, Karen, about these nicotine pouches? I mean, are we at the education phase here to make people aware of the potential addiction and the, and the dangers of these products unregulated? For sure. So I think there's a multi-purpose uh, or multi-prong approach, right? So there's the, the um, advocacy and, um, you know, discussions that need to happen with Health Canada around um, revising um, and hopefully implementing a stronger regulation around the product. Um, and then I think, too, the other part is, yes, education. And so that happens, um, and we have a great relationship with the school boards where we've, we've spoken with administrators, with students, uh, with teachers and school staff um, around um, lots of the different nicotine um, products um, that are available. So certainly that's a, a great way. And then, of course, um, you know, uh, uh, talking um, to to youth about it um, and I would just say you know uh, again keeping lines of communication open being curious about what they're seeing and, and why they think people are are using those products um, and again yeah keep communication open and and listening and then being available to to answer any questions uh, that you have and so yeah I think our role for sure is is ensuring that the public is aware uh, of this and um, uh, and, and, yeah, and answering any questions and just appreciate you having uh, having us on the, on today to kind of share the information that we have. And we'll continue to monitor the um, uh, this how, how this product is impacting our community for sure. I'm grateful to you, Karen, for making the time to have this conversation with us today. It's important. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, you as well. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Karen Howie is a public health nurse with Region of Waterloo Public Health. Flavored nicotine patches, or pouches, pardon me. And you just stick it between your gums and your lip, kind of like chewing tobacco, but there's no need to spit, there's no nothing. And they come in flavors that sound rather attractive to young people, wouldn't you say? Tropical breeze? Are you kidding me? And these are largely unregulated on the market. Health Canada has approved just one brand. It's called Zonic, and that's under its natural health product regulations. But it also comes with a warning to not use if a person is under the age of 18. So I just worry that this becomes the gateway. Because if you're starting under 18 and you're getting accustomed to having this nicotine in your system, then I would suspect that you're going to continue wanting and or needing that nicotine in your system. I Look, I'm a non-smoker, so 
I don't really I don't really get any of it, including the vaping and the e-cigarettes, which crazily I witnessed and smelled at the Rangers game on Friday night last. There was a group of fans not far from our broadcast booth, and at least one of them, because I could see it in his hand, was vaping inside the arena. I don't know how I I don't even know how you do that. And frankly, I don't know why you're doing that. The whole idea of an electric cigarette and whatever that contains going into your mouth and then you're inhaling whatever chemicals are in that mixture. But again, I don't get it. Karen kind of read my mind, though, when she mentioned, hey, this is the time of year that maybe people are making that commitment to their health and thinking about quitting. And I thought we could move that way with our conversation this morning. If you are quitting or if you have successfully quit, what was the secret for you? And maybe these nicotine pouches, maybe you've tried the regulated one and it is helpful. Educate me a little bit more on these things. Gary sends an email to Mike at 570news.com. I'm not a smoker, but if they're serious about helping smokers quit, they'll have nicotine pouches with flavors like stewed prunes, liver, etc. <laughs> well played, Gary. Well played. Let's go to the phones. Lisa, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm so angry. I have a teenager. She's almost 18. She's been vaping for years. We've done so, we tried so many things. We have, every time we found a vape, we threw it out. They have such easy access to vapes already. And now this pouch thing, like I, I am livid. I know for a fact at the schools, they have so many issues with kids vaping in the bathrooms, in the change rooms, right inside the schools. They don't set off smoke detectors. Like I don't. I don't know why we continue to allow these things to be flavored like candy. I agree with what Gary said. Stewed prunes, liver, they should taste, all of this stuff should taste disgusting. Lisa, I feel for you. So these, and I imagine there are a variety of flavors perhaps that your daughter has brought home and tried and your anger comes from these being widely available and in flavors that are attracted, attractive to young people. And, yeah. and, you know, they think that they're pulling the wool over our eyes. But when I walk in her room and it smells so strongly of candy, I know what is happening. Like, that's what they smell like. They smell like candy. And you know what? Out of my own curiosity, one time I found one in her room and I don't smoke. And I sucked on it. And it was delicious. And I'm like, this is disgusting. I am so angry. I've tried calling my MP and no one gets back to me. Like, it's it's just, it's aggravating. Lisa, thanks for sharing that. And I hope uh, I hope we can find a way forward on this. Thanks so much. Me too. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Called your MP, eh? Oh, Lisa didn't mean to do this, but that pushes one of my buttons. Because you know how I feel, right? The most direct level of politics is local politics, right? You need something done, you call your local counselor. And yet we have so little engagement in local politics. But this is absolutely something your MP should do for you. Absolutely. At minimum, call Lisa back. Come on. It's your damn job. And I know how well or how good these things smell. Uh, My neighbor enjoys the vape. And like I'm such a doofus. I'll be outside 
And I smelled it delicious. You know me and candy, right? It's like, oh my gosh, things smell amazing out there. And it takes me five seconds to realize, oh, right, my neighbor's got some new flavor. Imagine that in your kids' mouths. And now, along with the e-cigarettes, we're just going to add the nicotine pouches. Good job by us. Let's just put more crap into their bodies. Uh, We'll take more calls right after this. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. As it continues to be sold and as there is no limitations on who can purchase them, I anticipate that this will become, again, a new and popular product for you to try and and use. And because it's a pouch, you don't have to spit. There is no smell, right? Again, it's very discreet and very convenient for use. Karen Howie is a public health nurse here in the region of Waterloo. She joins us this morning to talk about the latest nicotine craze, because that's what we really need in the world, right? Another addictive nicotine product that, oh yeah, is getting into the hands of kids. These nicotine pouches that come in a variety of flavors that seem very appealing to young people. Flavors like tropical breeze, etc. And only one such pouch has been approved by Health Canada. It also comes with a warning not to use if a person is under the age of 18. But these things are widely and readily available to anyone who wishes to get their hands on them. And seems to me as though the cart is well out in front of the horse. 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. Steve, good morning. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Not bad, thanks. How about you? Good. Good. So I just want to bring a bring a point up. How are these kids getting these uh, these products? They're uh, underage to purchase them. Uh, therefore, I think we should be going after the people who are distributing them. It's a drug, just like any other illicit drug. Uh, you know, using going after the user at the end of the day doesn't necessarily stop it, but you need to stop the or stem the flow of them getting to the user. So I'm wondering what we do about that. Yeah, Steve, appreciate the call and. At, at this point, by the sounds of things, right, we, we don't know a whole lot about the health effects of these nicotine pouches or how effective they may be at helping people quit smoking if they are over the age of 18. But it doesn't sound like there is a whole lot in the way of regulation. And so you can go into any old convenience store and or gas bar and you'll find these products right alongside the candy and the chocolate bars, for example. So ah, it it's one that I have a very difficult time wrapping my head around. But since these pouches are nicotine and flavored, they don't fall under the enforcement under the Smoke-Free Ontario Act or even the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act. However, health officials are concerned that there is a similar risk of nicotine addiction that leads, of course, to traditional cigarettes, chewing tobacco, vaping, etc. And sans enforcement, what we have here is a better opportunity, an easier opportunity for youth to get their hands on the product. It is a, a, a tough one, and it was brand new information to me when I came across the story the other day. So I'm grateful that Karen Howie from Public Health could make the time for us on the show this morning 
to talk about what these products are, the concerns associated with them. And please, like to go back to the call we got earlier from Lisa, talk to your MP because it's going to be a Health Canada regulation here on these products. Let's get them behind a power wall at minimum, much like cigarettes in convenience stores and gas stations, right? Let's not make these products so easily accessible to youth. It seems like we have to move on that and move on that pretty quickly. All right, we've got an update from the City News Centre coming up, and then a 55-story skyscraper in downtown Kitchener. So much is it scraping the sky that Nav Canada had to approve the tower, its location and its height, for fear that it might interfere with the flight path here in the region. We'll talk about this skyscraper coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. As you know, our studios here for City News 570 are on the boardwalk in Kitchener. Lovely area, fantastic office space, state-of-the-art studios, love every bit of it. I bring that up by way of reference to our former location in downtown Kitchener, corner of King and Water. We were on the 12th floor of the McPherson Centre, that building that has long stood on that corner, and it occurs to me that were we still there in that location in downtown Kitchener, by the time this latest high-rise approved by Kitchener Council is built, we would not have been able to see from our studios at King & Water in downtown Kitchener to Waterloo, because if we looked south, this new building would be directly in our sight line. It's going up on uh, King Street basically at Francis, kind of between Francis and Victoria, where Ziggy's cycle is right now. It's a low-rise building currently. It will soon be anything but 55 stories has been approved. Paul Singh is the councillor for Ward 6 in Kitchener. He's also the chair of the city's Planning and Strategic Initiatives Committee. Paul, thanks for making the time. Good morning. Hey, Mike. Happy to join you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How about yourself? I'm glad to hear it. Uh, Tell me more about this project, 55 stories on King Street West. How did this all come together? Well, you know what, as you said uh, uh, in your earlier uh, point, that you may not have been able to look into Uptown Waterloo, but you would have a a nice shiny building. Uh, It's a development proposal put by Vanmar Development. They introduced it in October. Uh, It would have likely... Uh, come to council and perhaps approve the way it did um, almost a month earlier. But I think there were some issues with NAPCAN just because of the the height that they need to resolve, which they did, and it was approved um, last week. Does the height in any way, Paul, give you pause as a a councillor, as a a resident of the city of Kitchener? Well, the thing is, uh, 55 does sound like a tall tower, a large number, uh, but we have it's not that we haven't seen large towers um being constructed and come forward with uh proposals and approved 
we've approved uh, heights of 46 stories, 45 stories, and they think there's a 39-story tower that's already been built. So tall towers is is the way things are going. Um, and at the same time, we need the density in our core. We need the housing. Uh, we are approving a tremendous amount of more um, applications than we have ever. Um, and at the same time, we also have tremendous amount of growth, more than we've ever experienced in the past as well. To that end, are you are you confident that we're still getting the right mix when it comes to housing in the city, Paul? Because I, I feel as though every time we're hearing about more housing, it's in a condominium tower. But the thing is, we need housing for everybody, Mike. Right. Um, the thing is... Sure, you know, the argument comes forward whenever you have a condo development. Well, this is going to be too expensive. This is only for one segment of the population. Well, we got to provide for them as well. This tower would be only maybe a stone throw away from uh, Google around the corner from Communitech. We have a tech talent. Uh, we have, we're fortunate to have tech companies. Um, and again, to, to support and stimulate uh, that type of economy, you need the right talent that's here and those individuals need housing but it's also fair to recognize we may have approved this but we've approved many other applications that are various different types of housing that's low rise that's um, stacked towns that's uh, rental we're approving far more rental uh, uh, applications than we have ever have we are absolutely building all sorts of housing stock so we can't just get fixated on one because it may seem that very tall. The fact is, like we spoke a couple of weeks ago about, uh, you know, developing on a peripheral of our city, you know, in our in a greenfield, right? Um, the fact is, if we want less urban sprawl, we got to build more upward. This particular building, with uh, more than six hundred units inside of it, has fewer than two hundred parking spaces. But I suppose that comes from the location where it's going to be sitting, right? You're going to have some bicycle spots in there, and you are a stone's throw, really, from light rail. Absolutely, and that's the thing, right? We are, within our core, you know, we, we can build development that's not, um, you know, car-centric. And, um, you know, new homeowners that will rely, or residents that will rely on public transit. And that's efficient, and that's environmentally friendly. So I think it... Uh, it reaches our goals beyond our housing objectives. I think it also allows us to build a more environmentally friendly city. Does this particular build, Paul, offer anything beyond the condominium towers because, or the condominium units, pardon me, because you're in the core? Is there an opportunity here for street-level retail, any public space, anything like that? That's exactly the case. It is a mixed-use tower, so they would have commercial on the main floor. So you're losing... Some of the commercial that's been there for, for, for generations with the Ziggy Cycle, but that's not to say that there won't be new commercial opportunities afterwards. So tower um, housing units above and commercial on the ground floor. With council now having given its blessing to this particular tower, uh, does it just move forward now in terms of the work the developer has to do? Are there any public meetings or is this now just going to move towards construction phase? It's been approved by council, um, and so which means that development can proceed forward. Um, again, approvals um, are one thing; getting the shovel in, in the ground is another. I'm really ecstatic and happy that we are getting the amount of development interest 
in our city. Uh, I think it recognizes the fast pace with which we are growing and, and that um, the population is growing as well, so that we need housing. But again, approvals aside, we want to make sure that these housing housing units get built. So it's Vanmar Development. They're a big developer. They're well-recognized. They've done good work in our region as well as the city of Kitchener. So I have full confidence in them. I just hope that they get that shovel on the ground fast. And this is another point that I want to raise with you. You know, it's it's one thing where we talk about, you know, these tall towers or condos that may only be selected for a demographic with higher higher earning potential. But the fact is when development happens and construction takes place, it brings in money and investment to our city and it hires people as well. I think the benefits go beyond just housing. Paul, I really appreciate you making time for the show today. Thanks for being here and have a Merry Christmas. I always enjoy being with you and a Merry Christmas to all your listeners. Thanks, Paul. Stay well. Bye-bye. Paul Singh, Ward 6 Councillor in the City of Kitchener, also chairs the city's planning and strategic initiatives committee. Look, I don't want to be, but well, I'm going to be that guy. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't even preface it by saying I don't want to be, because look, I, I know that we need the housing. I do. And, and I'm a pretty big proponent of the whole supply, supply, supply argument here. Right. And yes, these condominiums themselves and the bunch approved in Waterloo last week are not in and of themselves going to get us to the critical supply we need to start seeing costs come down. But we do need the supply. So in that sense, I get it, and I'm happy that there will be soon enough, however long it takes to build a 55-story tower, 600-plus new housing units in the city of Kitchener alone. But I just... I paused on this one because you heard Paul reference and just off the top of my head, you know, the the near 40 stories that are at, uh, where are we, Duke and Frederick, okay? So there's, that was one of the big ones to go downtown. Then there's Charles and Gockle, and that one I believe is more than 40. There's another 40-plus story tower proposed, and I I think it may already be approved. It's certainly in the process, not far from this one at King and Francis. This one is kind of on the other side of the street over, um, uh, where would we go? Like up Francis a little bit, kind of in behind the the Kaufman Lofts there. I think that's where it's going to be, right? Or maybe this was the one that just went from 40-something to 50-something. I could be mistaken on that one. Forgive me. I'm just going off the top of my head. There's another one on Borden and Charles, which is proposed at 51, I do believe, maybe a little bit more. It's a lot of really tall buildings. And not everybody, not everybody wants to live in a condominium. It creates it creates a different kind of urban environment. It, it really does. And I, I get it. Sprawl has historically been proven a challenge, right? Look at how car-centric our community became because we just kept building out and out, and what a mess our city is really by way of design and getting places because of the way we built it out and out. And if we're going to go up anywhere, we may as well be going up downtown. I find myself, though, lately having a a wee bit of a a love-hate relationship with it. Sometimes I can see the building at Duke and Frederick. I think that's the one I'm seeing from a distance. Uh, 
pretty much anywhere I walk the dog in my neighborhood. And some days I'm looking out at the skyline and I'm like, don't know if I love this. And that's just the one building I can see. Clearly the the 50 plus story buildings that are still to come are going to be others. And then just the other day, out for a walk with the dog and there was a really nice colored sky with the sunset. And I thought, eh, you know what? Building doesn't look all that bad set against the sky. But I was also kind of glad to be walking in the neighborhood where I was currently walking with some low rises, but mostly single family detached homes. Because while maybe someday to be able to get rid of the maintenance that comes with having a home and the property, I could see condominium living being appealing, but I I just feel as though that's what we're doing the most of. Like kudos to Waterloo last week, and we talked about it. 4,000 housing units approved in one meeting. One quarter of the 16,000 units promised to the province by 2031. It's fantastic in one meeting, but you know what? Not a single damn one of them was a house. (laughs) It's just all towers, right? The Krause carpet development, a big part of that. They're going to do another major one at the site of the Inn of Waterloo, right? And more towers. And I I get it. It's where you've got some land and you're going to build up and up. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, how many condominium towers can one community hold? I feel that it's a little bit on the impersonal side. And I understand in saying that, I'm talking a little bit about a personal preference. I'm probably sounding a little bit like a NIMBY because there's not much more room to go out. And the kinds of neighborhoods that I grew up in, maybe that you grew up in too, just aren't the kinds of neighborhoods we're building anymore. How do you feel about what I will call for this morning's conversation for the sake of argument, the condominium craze? How do you feel? Is there such a thing as too high for you? Is there such a thing as too many? Would love to hear your thoughts. 519-570-2545. Star 570-1800-570-5715. George, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Mike. On the weekend, I was at Waterloo Park enjoying those beautiful Christmas lights. And when I saw all those beautiful buildings with the Christmas lights on and the park was lit up, I felt like I was at Central Park. Sorry, Central Park in New York. Yeah, the big one. And that can be both good and bad. I mean, if you like that kind of stuff, we're a growing city. That's what we're going to get. Did he, by the way, mention Van Mar? Yes. You know what? I've gotten to know some of them people top notch. I'm glad it's them. I hope they build a, a nice building that many people can use. I know it's not for everyone, like you and me, Mike, but... Vanmar is a great company, and I'm glad it's them. George, appreciate that. And I, you're talking about the barrel yards in Waterloo. That's what you would have seen while you're up at Waterloo Park. And I agree. It can be, and there, like I said, I feel like I have this love-hate relationship. Sometimes I'm looking at the skyline, and I, I'm really taken in by it. And other times I'm like, I don't know. I just don't know. But to George's point, where he was when he was admiring that built form at the barrel yards... In Waterloo Park, those public spaces are going to be strained to the max in the years ahead. Victoria Park and Kitchener, when you keep putting up big buildings like this that don't have immediate space on site, backyards, etc., folks are going to be flocking out of their buildings because they want to get outside and they're going to be into those parks, putting a strain on the resources that are there. 
Not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just saying this is a thing that we're going to have to be ready for. Marius, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Um, I have a hate-and-hate relationship with Towers. Okay. Um, And um, I think it goes counter to the immigrants' view of America, the American-Canadian dream. I mean, who do you think wants to move here and live in a two-bedroom apartment on the 16th floor from uh, wherever you want in the world? I don't think that's a dream. So me being an immigrant and working in construction, I hate them, but I understand their, their usefulness too. So take it as you want. All right. Thanks, Marius. I appreciate that. And, you know, in my mind, and I could be the biggest ignoramus in the crowd today, but sometimes I think this is just a me thing. And folks coming from other parts of the world that may have lived in much more dense urban centers in multi-unit dwellings would look at this as just like, hey, this is this is common to me. So I am the, you know, old cranky guy that's saying, well, this isn't the kind of neighborhood I grew up in, blah, 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 blah. But Marius takes a different view on that, and that's what we're here to talk about, right? I like to hear your ideas. I like to hear how you feel about these things. We'll take a break and come back with more calls on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. It's one thing where we talk about, you know, these tall towers or condos that may only be selected for a demographic with higher earning potential. But the fact is when development happens and construction takes place, it brings in money and investment to our city and it hires people as well. I think the benefits go beyond just housing. Paul Singh is a counselor. Ward 6 in the city of Kitchener. He also chairs the city's Planning and Strategic Initiatives Committee. Joins us this morning to talk about the latest approval in Kitchener. Yes, it's more than 600 new units of housing. It all comes, though, in one 55-story condominium tower. Back to the phones. Greg, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Good. We haven't, it's been a few months since we met, but uh, you were talking about housing in your neighborhood and you probably don't remember, but I had to meet with you uh, to gather a signature for something. Oh, yeah, I remember for sure, yeah. Yeah, so uh, regarding the condominiums, I think they're relatively good for the downtown core as far as population growth and infrastructure and all that, but uh, they do have an adverse effect on people who live near them. I have a friend who uh, lives down near Victoria Park, there's a big complex uh, being built, uh, Victoria and Park area. And uh, once it's built, he won't have any sunshine after 2 p.m. in his backyard. And they went to town council to complain, and a bunch of the community did, but uh, it's still uh, going through. It. But the, while they're good on one hand, I think they're uh, adversely uh, affecting people on the other. Greg, that's really well said, and I appreciate the phone call. And sometimes we don't think of that. Listen, if we're going to grow high, grow up anywhere, it's going to be downtown. That's for sure. Ben, good morning. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for making it. Um, It's not a black and white issue. I'm sure we all understand that. Uh, We definitely need to grow denser cities. Uh, It's better... Ecologically, it makes a healthier urban environment. There just needs to be more oversight. Uh, I like the proposal at the old Krauss uh, carpet factory, but it is going to be a traffic nightmare. Not everyone, like you're really dreaming if you think everyone's just going to hop on the LRT in the morning and, and go to wherever the LRT can take you. There needs to be more oversight with infrastructure. 
usually cities like Toronto, for example, suffer, uh, even though it looks like a healthy city and it's growing. And, uh, you know, in terms of construction, uh, it seems like, you know, it, it's booming. But at the same time, uh, there's no there's no coordination, right? So that's an issue. The other thing, too, is, is it's just simply aesthetics. I mean, North, North American cities are pretty ugly. I've been fortunate to travel around the world for work a lot, and I've seen what urban can look like. So it's not just about tall buildings. We need mid-rises. If you go down to, like, just southwest of downtown Kitchener, there's so many opportunities for development there. It's just begging for it, where they're brownfields, right, old industrial sites. We can do it smarter, um, but there needs to be oversight, aesthetically, infrastructure, basically how the city's going to work. The last thing I'll say is, why aren't we building rentals? We, if we're building tall buildings, we don't need condominiums. We need rentals for people to make a, a real uh, uh, a, a real difference in, in the problems that we have with uh, with our housing. Ben, appreciate the thoughts on that. And I will say, maybe it's these sorts of 55-story towers that you need Nav Canada approval on because you don't want to get in the flight path that get the attention in the headlines. But Kitchener and our other cities are building some purpose-built rentals. Even uh, Paul Singh, our guest, mentioned that in the conversation this morning. So it's not like we are ignoring the rental market, but these projects certainly do uh, grab our attention and they are talking points. Thanks for being a part of this conversation this morning. A quick update from the City News Centre and then Putin says there will be no peace in Ukraine until his goals are achieved. Let's check in on where things stand headed into the holidays. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Well, you may have heard some translations last week from a news conference held by Vladimir Putin, and he made it pretty clear that there will not be peace in Ukraine until his goals are achieved. So if you can even say this as we approach two years of this war, dig in, get ready uh, for the conflict to drag on even longer. Andrew Basso is a professor of political science at Wilfrid Laurier University, also a researcher with the Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy. He has been our go-to on this story, and so we go to him again this morning. Andrew, good morning. Hey, good morning, Mike. If we look back at some recent events in the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, one of the things that we were paying some attention to was the summer offensive on the part of Ukraine, hoping to advance maybe as far as 50 miles, but only achieving about 10. What held them back? It was a underwhelming offensive, unfortunately. Um, the Russians were far more dug in than most people expected. And I think more so than that, I think we had extraordinarily high hopes for this offensive, sort of a single decisive blow. Um, there were a few things that really held the Ukrainian back, the Ukrainians back. First one is this doctrine of combined arms operations. It's extremely difficult to 
pull off. I mean, think of coordinating a holiday dinner for a large family. That is a difficult task in and of itself. Now, exponentially expand that and abstract those logistics to where there are artillery shells falling about you and your best laid plans are not surviving contact with your adversary. Uh, Coordinating mechanized assaults through minefields, motorized flanking efforts, and air and artillery support across a wide front line with tens of thousands of troops that need to be fed and they need to be cared for when wounded, gasoline and repairs for vehicles, and ammunition restocking, we're just starting to scratch the surface of what's required. Now, what makes this particularly difficult is this is completely new to Ukrainian warfighting doctrine. The Americans can pull this off, but few other nations can. That was one thing that held the Ukrainians back, this newness of the idea. Um, Another one was the axes of attack that the Ukrainians chose. They probably chose correct to go to Zaporizhia. Um, But U.S. officials, they were arguing that the Ukrainians need a single axis of attack. And the Ukrainians, they instead chose three. So they split their forces. Um, You know, that that created a situation where they were just spread too thin. Um, The good news here is that Ukraine did advance a few kilometers, but nowhere near the objectives of the operation. Ukraine also didn't lose strategically, as the situation is sort of similar as before the offensive, but it did experience a tactical defeat. It could launch more operations in the coming year, though. Um, Ukrainians and NATO countries, they also have incredible logistics routes set up, that a tank gets damaged, it gets sent back to Germany for repairs, and it's back to the front rather quickly. Weapons donations are still coming in from the Europeans. Europeans, especially the Swedish and the Germans, they're seriously planning on setting up production facilities in Ukraine. So there's a lot of good. There's also a lot of bad. That the counteroffensive or the offensive action in the summer, it kind of resembles the failures of Operation Market Garden in 1944. Um, It was supposed to be the single decisive blow, and it wasn't. And what's settling in here is sort of a blame game. The... um, The blame game that's that's sort of in full swing is that many in NATO countries, like us, were wondering if if this is all on the Ukrainians. Not really. The combined arms doctrines that I was talking about, they require two critical things that Ukraine was not given. First one is air superiority. That one of the reasons the Ukrainian offensive failed was the Russians, they had a strong detachment of attack helicopters deployed to the coastal city of Berdyansk. And they were out of range from Ukrainian missiles. Ukraine also wasn't given proper uh, um, air superiority fighters to protect their advancing mechanized formations. The F-16 deliveries scheduled for 2024 will probably solve that issue, but it's too late for 2023. The other thing the Ukrainians were held back on was long-range artillery, that any any combined arms assault operation it requires artillery with a range to hit anything behind your adversary's front line. So the Ukrainians, they were given high Mars, but high Mars, they don't have the range of what they now have are Atacam systems. And the first Atacam strike, it was on that Berdyansk airfield that held those helicopters to devastating effects. Um, moreover than that, Ukraine, it also now has some ammunition problems after this grinding halt to the offensive that Ukraine has been firing about six to 7,000 shells out of their artillery systems per day. NATO donated systems, they use 155-millimeter shells, but there are still plenty of leftover Soviet 122-millimeter and 152-millimeter systems in use. 
And there's a dire need for ammunition for both of these systems, U.S. and Soviet. Um, the big problem is you can't fire one out of the other. They're chambered totally different. Um, so all of these things, they combine to create the situation where the minefields proved to be too difficult, the Russians had too much air superiority, and it ground into an attritional or positional warfare. So if we had an underwhelming summer offensive on the part of Ukraine, Andrew, are we looking ahead to a winter stalemate in the months ahead? We probably are. Now, Russia attempted to capitalize on all of this by launching an offensive operation in Avdivka. Um, this was an absolute disaster for the Russians in the last two months. The Russians, they've, they've suffered about 13,000 casualties to advance about 100, maybe 200 meters. That's about it. The battle lines have stabilized, and both sides, they're, they're rearming. Ukraine needs more donations of equipment, and there's a lot to say about the lack of donations coming in. And Russia, well, it, it, from pre-war estimates, the amount of casualties that it's suffered is about 84% of its pre-war combat power. Now, it's replenished that with more conscripts, but there's not much uh, there, there's not much left in the tank, if you will. Uh, Russia is, is is using old tank systems. Uh, they're trying to produce stuff. They're trying to get artillery uh, uh, shells from North Korea, but sometimes they don't explode, or sometimes they blow up the artillery system that it's trying to be launched out of. So there is a stalemate that's happening here, and it almost looks like there's a bit of a revolution in warfare happening too that it's sort of the rise and fall of drones. The drones, they are the leading cause of angst and destruction on the field right now. And this is a total warfare game changer. We've never had something like this. Um, whether we are talking about Nagorno-Karabakh or we're talking about the Middle East or we're talking about Ukraine, drones are being used to devastating effect. Now, that said, they can be easily swept aside with good electronic warfare packages. Developing those are going to take time, though. Um, Ukraine is rewriting warfighting tactics right now, and everybody is trying to figure out how best to, uh, to, to move on this chessboard. So while they're trying to figure that out, we are at a stalemate. You mentioned those donations that Ukraine really needs here, Andrew, and it makes me think about support from Western allies, which I don't know, but I, I get the sense that it might be faltering. It is. So the Europeans, they are they are giving quite a bit now. There are a lot of smaller countries, including Scandinavian countries, that are, uh, as a percentage of GDP, uh, they're donating quite a bit. Um, others, not so much. Um, in the United States, the U.S., it was supposed to be the arsenal of democracy, if you will. It promised that Ukraine was going to get all the aid it, could, it would need for as long as it takes. Uh, well, Biden, he's now changing that to as long as we can. That's largely because of pro-Russian Republicans in Congress in the United States. And I think they deserve naming Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and Jim Jordan. They're holding up defense aid to Ukraine. So Ukraine has basically had to curtail offensive and defensive operations to defend against uh, Russian actions at the bare minimum. Uh, Congress in the United States is in recess now, so the earliest there could be an agreement is probably mid-January, which means the shells and all the other systems, they're probably not getting to Ukraine until March. 
this could be a very costly winter without those those U.S. supplies. Now, on the other hand, there are some other countries that are donating still. You know, Denmark and Germany, they just donated about 200 tanks. Albeit they're not Leopard 2s, they're Leopard 1A5s with thin armor, but they are still tanks. Um, Russia has been trying to exploit our public opinion that the the Avdivka operation, it was intended to show the world that Ukraine will crumble. Well, Ukraine's been able to hold out, and Russia is really trying to amplify the amount of losses that it's inflicting on Ukraine right now, showing different angles of of different destroyed tanks, claiming they're multiple different different destructive or different uh, moments of destruction. Um, you know, Russia is deploying its hybrid warfare again. The information space, Twitter and all the others, this is where the battlefield is happening right now as well. Um, Russia is hoping to ferment those pro-Russian sentiments or at least those, those, those war fatigue sentiments that Ukraine is fighting against right now. Um, on the other side of things, again, Ukraine, it's being talked about as a potential European Union member. And that's even against the wishes of of Viktor Orban of Hungary. Um, That said, yet again, there's a pro-Russian government that's just been elected in Slovakia, and Viktor Orban in Hungary is still very much in play. So Putin is playing his hybrid warfare game again, saying that, that it's going to be a stalemate. You might as well come to the table and get, get our terms. Uh, Ukraine, it has generally no desire to do so. So the coming three, four months are probably going to be pretty decisive for what's going to happen here. I'll come back to Putin in a moment. But when you mention Viktor Orban, Andrew, you, you get me thinking about the EU. And, and when all of this started, there was a lot of talk about Ukraine and NATO. But now Ukraine is being bandied about as a potential candidate for entry to the EU. Could it happen? And if so, what does that mean? I'm going to bet it probably doesn't happen until this war is ended. Uh, there's, I, I just don't see Viktor Orban stepping aside um, or, or other pro-Russian governments stepping aside. You know, These pro-Russian movements in, in various political parties in Europe, they are starting to really pop up. Um, so unless Ukraine wins, it's probably not becoming a, an EU member. But there is a political game that's happening here. And the political game, it's really a story of three elections. The Russia, it's holding its presidential election between 15 and 17 March 2024. Ukraine, it has a presidential election scheduled for the 31st of March. But under U- the Ukrainian constitution, you can't hold an election while there's martial law in place. So that one's probably going to get kicked down the road, which is not uncommon for democracies to do. We did, you know, the, the British did very similar things during the Second World War. Um, and then the United States, that's the big one, on the 5th of November, 2024, that all of this, it, this is this is really Karl von Clausewitz, the, flam- the famed Prussian military theorist. This is his trinity in action, that warfare, it is about the military reality on the ground for sure, but it's also about the government, and it's also about the people. And will the government and the people support warfighting efforts? Putin is playing the dangerous game, as he always is. 
Um, he's facing this March 2024 election, and he maybe on the one hand is making the classic dictator's error. Tighten your grip on power too hard, and then all of those repressed voices, they will explode. Or on the other hand, Russian public opinion has been shown to be pretty resilient to this war. Um, sanctions, they, some, they have worked in some respects, perhaps not as much on oil exports as we would have hoped. Um, but Russia, it, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion Putin gets back in. After that, we'll see what happens. But for the Europeans, there are going to be some elections outside of these, these three as well. And if more pro-Russian politicians get elected, this is going to be a barrier not only to Ukraine's EU membership, but probably to more weapons shipments. So Ukraine is, I wouldn't say they're in a dire, a more dire situation than they were this time last year, um, but the direness hasn't subsided by any means. It's really interesting to me because, as I said at the beginning, and what we heard from Putin last week, late last week, is that there will not be peace in Ukraine until his goals are achieved. And, and you point out, Andrew, that he faces that election coming up in March of 24. And I, I guess I should have assumed, as you point out, it's unlikely he loses. But I, I just wondered if the need to shore up support ahead of that election in March makes Putin some kind of wild card in all of this. He is. You know, there's there's a... There's a small literature on on the relationship between elections and war, that when elections are coming up, this may make leaders who are susceptible to, to elections, that is anybody who could be voted out, it could make them a little bit more bellicose. So it wouldn't surprise me if Putin instructs his generals to try and conduct a massive offensive operation beforehand. Um, before this election to show that that uh, Russia is still quite powerful, but at the same rate, Russia, when it does these offensive actions, I mean, just last week there was a single day in Avdivka where Russia they lost about 1,200 personnel in a single day. Um, you know what's happening here is our, our entire companies, battalions, getting wiped out in a matter of weeks. So, you know, is he could become more bellicose. I actually wonder if he's going to take his foot off the gas a little bit and 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 delay offensive operations until after the election to ensure that there aren't the, the grieving family members in the streets protesting against Putin. Um, you know, and if he does that, the sanctions regime that was imposed on Russia, yes, there are those breadlines and actual breadlines in Russia in some places. Um, but for the oil sanctions that were put on, yes, the oligarchs in Russia are feeling the loss of revenues, but they also aren't because there's a shadow network of tankers, of oil tankers that have been set up from the North and Black Seas that get sent to Greece where Russian oil gets transferred to ships that are unflagged or of unknown origin. From there, they go to the Suez Canal and then they go to India and China. And because the oil industry is largely self-regulated, there's little governmental oversight. And no one really knows how much money is going back to the Kremlin. So do the sanctions work here to try and promote some political change? Well, sanctions, they basically capped Russian oil at $60 a barrel. But oil right now is trading at about $90 a barrel. 
So what that did is it incentivized a black market for Russian oil. And Russia found a way around the sanctions. And again, because of the lack of oversight, they can do this. So Putin has been really shoring up his international support, which really shores up the domestic support. So who knows? He is an absolute wild card at this moment. Such interesting stuff. And I'm so grateful, Andrew, we can lean on somebody like you for perspective. Thanks very much for once again joining the show. I really do appreciate it. Anytime, Mike. Enjoy your holiday, sir. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you. Andrew Basso is a professor of political science at Wilfrid Laurier University. He's also a researcher with LISPOP, the Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy. And he joins us on the Mike Farwell Show right here on City News 570. Oil right now is trading at about $90 a barrel. So what that did is it incentivized a black market for Russian oil, and Russia found a way around the sanctions. So Putin has been really shoring up his international support, which really shores up the domestic support. So who knows? He is an absolute wild card at this moment. Andrew Basso, a professor of political science at Wilfrid Laurier University, joining us to talk about the latest and the Russia-Ukraine war and get ready for another winter stalemate ahead. Let's go to the phones. Jersey Bill, good morning. Hey, yeah, I am really upset with uh, the way this has worked out. I, I, I just feel that uh, the Americans, uh, or the American government needed to do more at the beginning. We needed to give air cover. We, we, had, we realized that the, that the uh, Ukrainian Air Force wasn't there, certainly they didn't have a Navy either. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it just seems that we're we only want to do so much. And then we and then we you get to the point we don't do any more. So we do all these half efforts. And it, it's it's almost a, just throughout history after World War Two, almost every one of these efforts where we where we put in resources, we only seem to want to go halfway. We never want to to do things which will give us a, a positive outcome and and expending more money at the beginning and, and ensuring a positive outcome is, is much more cost effective than this endless spending of money to no good effect and allowing uh, dictators to have the upper hand because they, they don't have any governor. They don't have any, any, uh, any, any problem with, with spending money and spending lives the way we seem to have. Uh, you know, I, I realize the reason for that, but I just, I just find, I find it really a real horrible way that leads to horrible outcomes. Billy, I really appreciate that perspective. I agree with you wholeheartedly in that regard, wholeheartedly. An update from the City News Center is on the way. And then what about this plan to have all vehicles sold in Canada by 2035 to be zero emission vehicles? Let's talk about it next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Well, you know how things work in news these days, right? Ahead of any government announcement, there tends to be a strategic leak or two to prepare us for what's to come. And what's to come comes today, ripped straight from our headlines this morning. Federal Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault 
is going to outline the federal government's plans to make all vehicles offered for sale in Canada emission-free by 2035. The plan to phase out the sale of gasoline-powered vehicles will see automakers ensure at least one-fifth of those vehicles they offer for sale in 2026 are fully electric or plug-in hybrids. That will increase to three-fifths by 2030, and then again by 2035, every vehicle emissions-free. Flavio Volpe is the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, joins us to talk about it. Flavio, good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, as always, for making time. This is a, this is a big one that's got people talking already. Uh, is it practical? Is it possible in your mind? 20% by 2026 uh, for an industry uh, may be possible. 100% uh, by 2035 or any time is uh, fanciful fairy tale wishing. And um, what we are concerned about is uh, it's going to, the 20% by 2026 is going to bonus companies like VinFast from Vietnam or BYD from China, or Tesla, who imports vehicles from their Shanghai operation uh, to Canada. It's going to bonus them at the expense of companies that have spent 35 to 120 years making cars here, like Toyota or uh, Honda, Stellantis, Ford, or General Motors. Um, And so uh, eager to hear what the minister announces. I'm sure it'll be the same thing he arrogantly told me uh, was the path that he wasn't going to veer off last year. Which was? Well, what he said was, anybody who doesn't make the quota, for every car they don't make the quota, we're going to charge them $20,000. And so I want to put that into a, a real context for your listeners. If you sell 300,000 cars a year in this country, which a whole bunch of those that make cars here do, you need to sell 60,000 EVs in 2026. If you sell 45,000, your fine is $300 million. Those companies are making EVs here and selling them to Americans because we are supporting them, uh, provincial federal government, in uh, making Ontario an export hub. They won't get credit for that. But for companies like VinFast who make vehicles, which are good competitive vehicles in Vietnam without a screw, uh, or a uh, a mirror from Canada will then be credited. They'll get a credit that they could sell to a Toyota. Oh, by the way, we sell 100% uh, EVs. We'll sell you a credit so that you can continue buying from Canadian suppliers. It's it's nonsensical. Uh, it's a nonsensical system. So it sounds, Flavio, as though the federal government, through its best emissions-free intentions, if you will, is really cutting the legs out from under the Canadian automotive manufacturing industry. Mike, you know that uh, the APMA, which I run, built Project Arrow, an all-Canadian bumper-to-bumper operating zero-emission vehicle prototype. It's been going around the world to demonstrate Canadian capabilities that even though we don't have a car company, We can make everything in it. And the objective is to go and be the Canadian solution to EV manufacturing around the world. It has been wildly successful. I know personally exactly what we are capable of from bumper to bumper in this country and what the prices are and where the competition is. To get a 
connected to uh, the objectives that the federal government has set means that those car companies will have to buy those materials and those batteries and those motors from the sources that are available right now, and those are Chinese or Vietnamese. They're not Canadian. So why would you use the Canadian uh, 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 vehicle market regulation to drive business to China while you're also investing in Canadian manufacturing that is going to show up as the mining shows up in 26 and 27 and 2028. It, it's the two sides of that government need to talk to each other. I'm worried that the environment minister uh, has tuned out the industry in pursuit of legacy. Why, Flavio, does this technology have to come from China and Vietnam? Can we not build these vehicles here? We can. We need lithium that is in abundance underground in Ontario and Quebec. It needs to be mined. It needs to be processed. It needs to be delivered. That means the mining processes that stretch in this country, like in so many other uh, Western countries, 10 years, 15 years, uh, is the bottleneck. And so if you force the market to purchase these products now, the car makers have to go and get lithium, nickel, cobalt, uh, graphite where it's available. Uh, especially if you say you're going to find them by tens and hundreds of millions of dollars, they either go get it, absorb the fines, or just choose not to sell in this market. And if the objective of this government, which, by the way, we've worked so closely with this government from the prime minister on down, is to make Canada the zero-emissions vehicle hub for North America and one of the top uh, in the world, then you don't take your other hand and push the business to China. You mentioned earlier legacy. Would it be Guilbeault's legacy? Would it be this federal government's legacy? And really that legacy being we set the bar or we established the benchmark of zero emission vehicles as of 2035, irrespective of the impact on the industry. Like, is that what they're focused on, just the zero emission part? Well, I think Guilbeault's uh, legacy is that. I think the legacy of Christia Freeland, for example, in negotiating new terms in the NAFTA put Canada in an incredible position to win new investments. And Francois-Philippe Champagne went out and won them. Uh, you know, you and I have talked about them on air extensively. They've been great. Their cabinet colleague is not on the same page. Uh, they all, of course, report to somebody. The Prime Minister has been a wonderful friend of this industry. I think, uh, you know, I'm going to spend as much time being candid now, but uh, uh, also over the next few years, uh, helping this government come back from this from this brink in a in a policy they didn't have to pursue. Uh, it is it is not, you know. I imagine they're laughing us at us in uh, in uh, Shanghai. Uh, it is they're laughing at us at Tesla. God bless Tesla. They're it's a very popular brand, and they make great vehicles. They don't make them here. They make them in China, and uh, they get their batteries there. And uh, they are immediately going to get bonused in a credit scheme that they didn't earn uh, at the expense of Canadian workers uh, who are listening to you right now, who make 
some of the best cars in the world for the biggest car company in the world who has uh, an incredible plan uh, to reduce carbon uh, because that's been their way of life for uh, the last uh, 25 years when they launched the Prius. That company is going to get uh, punished in exchange for bonusing uh, Build Your Dreams, uh, uh, which is BYD, which is the uh, even bigger EV car company than uh, Tesla. They're Chinese, uh, state-financed, and part of China's automotive go-global aggressive export uh, plan from 2025. I mean, this is all publicly available information. I'm just surprised uh, that the environment minister uh, thinks that headlines today is better than jobs tomorrow. So y- your voice is a prominent one on these issues, Flavio, and I'm, I know there are others. Are you optimistic, though, because you alluded to not just today, but for the next several years trying to get the government to essentially see the error in its ways here? Are you optimistic? Can this, will this be possibly reversed at some point? Oh, boy. I don't know if it needs to get reversed because it hasn't been launched. You know, they can sure. <laughs> back from the brink. You know, it's a it's it's an incredible strategy where um, they're going to undo a lot of the good things that they've done here. Uh, these car companies that make cars in Canada, they are great corporate citizens, but they make decisions in Tokyo and they make decisions in Detroit and they make decisions uh, in uh, in Paris. And so. We don't get the advantage of, hey, let me call, uh, you know, Beverly, who is the CEO, uh, uh, who's going to make the decision uh, together with us in Toronto. Uh, it is, are you going to get your call answered in Paris uh, when uh, every other major jurisdiction in the world has a bigger market, uh, has a bigger return, uh, and uh, has more immediate benefit for those car companies to listen to than to Canada, which last I checked had less than 2% of the global market and uh, is shrinking. Flavio, always appreciate the time on the show. Thanks very much for being here today. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. Flavio Volpe, president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, uh, is pretty plain. And that's why we love having him on the show. But he thinks Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeau is concerned more here about legacy, his own personal legacy, than he is about Canadian automotive manufacturing jobs. And that doesn't even get into the part of the conversation that I believe is a gaping hole in this plan. And that is the utter lack of infrastructure to support a fully electric vehicle fleet by 2035. Where are all the chargers? And where is the support in our energy grid for all of those chargers? Even if we can build them, do we have the electricity infrastructure to support them? And I would submit to you no on both counts. I don't think we can build enough of them, and I don't think we have the grid to support them. Well, that's just me. What do you make of what we anticipate hearing from the feds today? Phasing out the sale of gasoline-powered vehicles, so at least one-fifth on offer for sale in 2026 are fully electric, and then three-fifths by 2030, 
and then five-fifths 100% by 2035. 519 570 2545. Star 570 1 800 570 5715. Kyle, good morning. Good morning. Well, I can't wait for our uh, hydrogen to come out, but the government doesn't want to talk about how clean that is. Um, you know what? There are many questions. I mean, the, you have your friend, I think his name is Ian, that drove a Tesla yesterday that called in. And, yeah, he and loves his electric vehicles. Oh, he loves it. That, that's good for him. But there's so many questions. So he said, I have to put a panel in my in my house, right? If I have to upgrade my panel, that's not cheap. That's like three to $5,000. So that's extra money that I got to put in. You know, he said, oh, I could drive here. I could drive there. There is no vehicle that's electric right now commercially or even just personally that can tow a vehicle properly with amazing range. I've seen all the videos. He can swindle me. He can try to swindle me this way and that way. There is nothing. I do between 400 and 600 kilometers a day of deliveries and driving around, and there is not a single commercial vehicle that will do over 300 kilometers an hour of charging. I don't have time to wait 45 minutes or whatever it is to get my vehicle charged. My time is money, my friend, and 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 for me, that that's the most important thing. I'd like to go electric. I'd like to actually, I'd like to go hydrogen. More more importantly, the electric. But there's no there's no grid like the grid system. You have a great point of it. Where, where's all like? There's so many questions, Mike. I I could write a book right now on just the questions that I have, and and we're pushing, 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 pushing. Sure, sure, it's great for the environment, but. What about Canadian auto workers, like you said? What about everything in Canada? We have so much here in our own backyard that the government isn't doing enough. But, Mike, I'd like to go uh, fishing. I'd like to go pull a boat and stuff. But I'm not making a stop every 100 kilometers an hour to eat ice cream and wait for my uh, truck to charge. Thanks there, Mike. All right, Kyle. Appreciate that. Yes, it is great for the environment. But I'm really going to go out on a an unsturdy limb here and submit to you how great compared to the fuel efficiency and emissions controls that exist on vehicles even today. Like, just think of the advancements we've made, even on gasoline-powered automobiles, in terms of the emissions that they create and the efficiency of their gasoline-powered engines. I don't know. I don't know. But I, I won't say negligible, but how big is the saving? Are the savings? How large are the savings between where we're at and fully electric. Paul, good morning. Morning. How are you doing? I'm okay. Listen, after uh, 30 years in automotive research and development in alternative vehicle systems, uh, uh, propane, natural gas, a little bit of hydrogen, uh, electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles, I have a little bit of background in the field. Uh, first off, um, something I was going to raise uh, the other day when you uh, <laughs> cut me off, Canada is sitting at 2% of the world's carbon emissions. I didn't cut you off. You said that, and then you told us about China's emissions. I didn't cut you off. You cut me off before I got to where I was going. Okay, can you uh, please get there? Take yeah. the superhighway, please. Yeah, thirty uh, over 30% of uh, carbon emissions come out of China. Uh, China has got the market cornered on lithium and uh, rare earth elements. The um, Do we really want to put all our transportation needs in the hands of the Chinese government. Yes, we have uh, lithium here in, uh, in Canada, but China owns the mines. As a matter of fact, the other day in the uh, uh, question period, somebody raised a question that, uh, as to why the liberals had uh, 
uh, weren't doing anything about the Chinese purchasing another mining company here in Canada to give them further control of, uh, I can't remember if it was rare earth elements or, uh, or lithium. The, uh, a while back, China had a uh, dispute with uh, Japan. So what did they do? They just, uh, in order to get their way, they just cut off the exports of uh, the necessary minerals to build an electric vehicle uh, in Japan. So they had to shut down the production for a while. We don't want China controlling everything here in Canada. And that doesn't even get into the uh, fact that our grid cannot uh, handle what it's uh, what is currently in order to put electric vehicles in everybody's driveway. The grid can't handle that. I agree with that. I worry about the infrastructure. i got to let some others weigh in, Paul. Thank you, though. Quick break. Back with more. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. So why would you use the Canadian vehicle market regulation to drive business to China while you're also investing in Canadian manufacturing that is going to show up as the mining shows up in 26 and 2028? The two sides of that government need to talk to each other. I'm worried that the environment minister has tuned out the industry in pursuit of legacy. Flavio Volpe is the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. He will remain optimistic that lobbying and advocacy can change the direction we feel the government is headed. And that is towards a fully electric vehicle fleet by 2035. I was just about to click the button that said Jordan's name on it, but we lost him. And that's too bad because I love hearing from new voices. But hey, Pedro is here too. Morning, Pedro. Morning, Mike. How are you doing, buddy? Hey, buddy. I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Listen... As the old saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink it. So you can say you're going to sell all electric vehicles by 2035, but we can't force you to buy one. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, old people or our seniors or parents, they're not going to go with an electric vehicle. They have their gas cars, and they're going to still buy their gas cars. It's more reliable. Pedro, appreciate the call. I get where you're coming from. And one of the other things we didn't talk about in all of this is the financial aspect. Like, there's a cost barrier still associated. We just replaced vehicles in our family this past summer. We didn't go electric. I'm sorry. I I don't make that kind of money. I just don't. I just don't. Anyway, uh, and as uh, who was it that pointed out? Jim, I think. Uh, Yes, where are you going to get Jim's email to Mike at 570news.com? Another point is, where are you going to get those vehicles fixed? We're already starving for mechanics, yet alone electric vehicle mechanics. Another good point, another piece of the infrastructure. And boy, oh boy, if you're focused on in the next 11 years, because it's basically 2024, moving to all electric vehicle fleets... There are so many other aspects to this, so many other aspects to it that have to also come along in lockstep. It's a lot of work. A quick break, an update from the City News Centre, and then our good friend from Habitat for Humanity, Waterloo Region, joins us to talk about the year that it's been in housing. Stay with us on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Well, a few years ago, we identified that 
Our mental health and how we take care of it was an emerging issue in this community and others. We talked about sort of a parallel pandemic during COVID-19, whereby our mental health was deteriorating and there was going to be some need for supports in the months and years after. And so those several years ago, we began a regular monthly segment on this show aimed at just that. We call it our monthly mental health check-in, and it happens on the first Tuesday of every month at 11.30. More recently, and I'm sure you've heard the stories around food insecurity from students through to families, one in ten families in our community, increasing demand on our food bank, and we have invited the food bank to be a part of our show on a monthly basis. They join us on the first Monday of every month to talk about how we support those who are food insecure in our community. And in between both of those things, we also recognize that probably the issue, the number one issue in our community today is housing. How we attain it, who can attain it, how we build more of it, etc. And to that end, we're grateful to our friends at Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region who said, yeah, we can join you third Tuesday of every month to talk about the number one issue in our community, and that is housing. Philip Mills is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region. He is the one who brings us the insight because I know it's an issue, but I'll be damned if I know what to do about it. Uh, And Phil makes time for us again this morning. Good morning, my friend. How the heck are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing this morning? I'm also doing well, thank you. And and thank you for being a part of these ongoing conversations because I, I'm sure we agree on this, Phil. I mean, it is probably the issue in our community and others today. I might be biased, but yeah, I do think it is. <laughs> yeah. So much of the other things that we face within the community and trying to keep our community strong and healthy and vibrant for everybody involved, housing is at the center of a lot of that. And so, yeah, I think it is the issue we're facing right now. Yeah, well said. And we've reached that time of year where we can reflect back on the year that it's been. And if we think about that in the context of housing, Phil, what would you identify as the biggest stories from 2023? When I was kind of pondering back on what has happened throughout 2023, there's a few things that stood out. Um, There was the big pledge from our local municipalities to build 70,000 homes by 2031. You know, seeing this as a crisis and seeing that being pushed by the provincial government that was part of their uh, plan to see 1.5 million homes built. So I think that big push was a big story because that was kind of validating that sense. Hey, this is a big deal. Something needs to be done. We need a plan. And that was something that stood out to me. You even see that canaring forward today, you know, fairly recently, Minister Frazier from the federal government launched this wartime housing catalog, this thing the governments are doing. I think some of these big stories are titled around the way in which our governments are finally maybe starting to push towards something. There's not enough to say housing is an issue, but okay, and what? And so I think you're starting one of the biggest stories is that, and I think that's juxtapositioned right against interest rates. Like you look at what has gone on with housing and you talk about interest rates, the reason the government has to act in so many ways is interest rates is so overwhelming right now it's such a hard thing to try and navigate because interest rates impact so many things including housing um which i think in the end kind of got me to the thing that stuck out the most to me this year which is this like sense of who needs affordable housing it's just something that i haven't been able to kind of get out of my head as i think about this maybe more than most and perhaps a little too much but 
as I think about housing and the need of housing this year, the thing that struck me more than anything is that the number of people in the kind of great swath of our community that actually needs affordable housing now is so much bigger than we would have thought and has grown in ways I never would have anticipated and could have thought possible. I just, I, we've talked about this before, Mike. Like we sat back and said, hey, you know, when we were younger, you know, $80,000 was a good job and you were doing okay and life should have been relatively normal. And right now you can't afford to live on that. And I think that's the thing that just continues to overwhelm me as I think about this and the you know year that was 2023 is the number of folks who are now in a position where affordable housing is front and center for them, who have done everything right, who are you know working hard, who are you know saving and pinching pennies, and it doesn't matter. It's just all too expensive. And if it's too expensive for them, how much harder it is for the folks who historically needed affordable housing, folks who are already on the margins. If a person making eighty thousand can't afford it. My goodness, the person making 40 and 35, like it's only gotten worse. You know, that resonates with me, Phil, so deeply because I I seem to recall one of our conversations over this year as you've joined us on a monthly basis was around who that person is, who is in the market for quote unquote affordable housing today. And you've just touched on it so well. It used to be, you know, $80,000 a year was a pretty decent income. Now it's got you looking for something more affordable and it gets into this whole thing affordable attainable and on the other end of the spectrum how unaffordable things really have become i mean average home prices in this region 800 900 sometimes a million dollars it's it's pretty wild when you sit back and think about it it is like the the growth is wild i often wonder how much folks who aren't in this really ponder how wild it has gotten you know, if you are not a person who's had to look for a house recently or has tried to buy a house recently, if you were into the market years ago, you understand like, yeah, this is good. You know, I'm lucky. I'm glad I'm in the market. But I'm not sure that we really grasp how hard it is to try to get into a housing market as it stands. Like I wonder when I'm chatting with folks, I often ask the question, could you afford the house you live in today? If you had to go out and buy it as it stands in current job, you know, the height of your earning powers, could you afford to buy your house? And so many people come back and be like, absolutely not don't have enough in the bank, would never be able to afford the mortgage if I had to pay for most of this house as a mortgage. And I think something in that shows how fundamentally broken so much of this is, that people living in homes that they could reasonably afford you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago when they bought them, couldn't buy that very same house today. So the person in their spot, you know, now starting out or who has moved in this community, like what are they to do? And there's just something so fundamentally off about that and i think that's you know harder i think people are getting better and better at understanding that but i think that shift has happened i don't know if it happened quickly like or slowly like boiling a a lobster or something that doesn't kind of notice it but i think we're hopefully people are kind of grasping and this is this has gotten out of hand so you you mentioned a couple of those highlights from 2023 the the build now initiative our own sort of made in waterloo region proposed solution with a wartime effort for building, followed by the federal government with its announcement just a couple of weeks ago now, which to me shows momentum, let's say, heading into the end of the year. So where do you see us going in 2024 when it comes to housing? So I I worry about being uh, a Grinch around Christmas. And sometimes I talk to people, they're like, hey, Phil, what's going on? Like, how is this going to be? And I was like, oh, man, it's going to get so much worse. 
and folks are like that's not very you know not very uh holiday spiritish but i think there is a real risk that things can get a lot worse there's almost sometimes a thought that like ah well you know it's bad but how much worse could it get i think a fair bit yet i think there is an opportunity like interest rates are not going anywhere anytime soon i can't imagine you know they haven't done a lot of systemic changes that would change the reason to start dropping interest rates interest rates drop you know right back to the market that created the situation we're in now build starts are down you know there's some reporting from the the record the other day that said that 23 percent fewer homes built this year than last when we're trying to target growth in housing we're actually seeing less homes being built every year so you know i think that there is a real risk if we can't galvanize around something as a community galvanize around some solutions you know make something if we just kind of kick the can down the road and think well it's not going to get much worse so we can focus on other things it can absolutely get a lot worse and it can continue to be this exasperating sort of reality you know you think about folks who you we know, were kind of talking about a few minutes ago if you couldn't afford to buy the home you live in now well, what happens when that mortgage comes up to be renewed like that stuff those rates have changed but if you're in a five-year mortgage, you might not have hit that change. And so I think there is more opportunity for more people to feel the cascading impacts of housing costs coming. And so I, you know, I maybe am a bit of a Grinch, uh, but that just might be general disposition of mine. Just kind of a grumpy old man these days, maybe. Uh, but I think going into 2024, I'm not, I am worried. I think there is reason to be worried um, if we don't do something. You know, I think it can be forgiven here if you because listen the the sector that you're working in and the challenges that that you as a ceo would face at habitat for humanity waterloo region and thinking about like the 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 depth of the need and the scope of habitat's ability to help i know and you know you do great work but the depth of the need has reached such a point that you know, you, you can be forgiven, I think, for feeling a little bit Grinch-like in this regard. But it just speaks to where we're at in housing. Well, that's awfully kind of you. Yeah, I, and maybe it is, you know, that you're kind of hard to look past where you're at. But it is, you know, looking at the numbers and, you know, talking to the people that we talk to and talking with other providers. You know, there is lots of reason to not to be concerned. Lots of reason to see this crisis continue. And knowing how long it takes to build a house, how long it takes to create stock. It's not as though we've got an answer just around the corner that's going to be ready for, you know, a big, you know, huge number of new homes in January of this year or something like whatever is here today. It's going to be here in January, February, March. It's going to be into next year because we don't have you know, a massive stock coming online right now. OK, let's let's leave the, the grinching to Dr. Seuss or Jim Carrey for a moment here and, and let's go. Let's put on that Santa cap like like Tim Allen did in the Santa Claus or, or I like I like Vince Vaughn and Fred Claus, to be honest with you. But. You'll get the Santa the Santa cap on now, Phil, and you know because we are at that time of year. Can you can you find some reason for optimism as we head into the holidays? I think so. You know, despite kind of all those things that are kind of sitting in front of us, all of that is predicated on us not doing something. And I think there is an opportunity for us to do something. And I guess that's where my hope and my optimism is going to come. You know, my Christmas spirit, so to speak, and Christmas cheer is going to come from the sense that I think you see people wanting to do something you know the federal government recent again that recent announcement around a catalog of wartime housing is them trying to do something and i do honestly think our politicians are trying to do something at all levels municipal folks are trying to do something provincial folks are trying to do something federal folks are trying to do something it's just such a big thing i think it's hard for them to get their hands around and to try and find common ground but i then you know the reality is they want to make change 
we in the community know that there needs to be something done. So I think that there is this appetite for innovation. There's an appetite to fix this, which wasn't necessarily here with the same sort of urgency a couple of years ago. And I would argue we could still use far more urgency than we're facing. But man, we've made some steps. And I think that there is lots of reason to believe that there will continue urgency within municipalities, within federal and provincial governments. There is certainly urgency within the not-for-profit sector. Like me and my colleagues, we are desperately trying to make solutions. You know, I will say, you know, there are solutions out there. You know, I'm still really bullish on our Build Now plan. And I think that the opportunity to build 10,000 homes in the region is incredibly real and would be transformative for us. And so my optimism comes because I see some things happening that would be transformative for where we live, that would be transformative for this entire region. And I see movement from those who are involved with us. I see movement from the municipalities and the federal government, the provincial government. So I, there's some reason to be, I guess, you know, optimistic going into 2024 that it would be bleak if nothing changed. But I think there is, you know, this need and this not just a need, but an appetite and a desire. I think folks are seeing more and more change has to happen. And so when that starts to well up within the community and well up within those positions of power, you know, the opportunity to do something transformative is there. And so I think that's my optimism going into 2024. And I would I would suspect, Phil, that the fact that we are talking about it as much as we are and this sense of urgency that you just mentioned comes from an understanding. I get that sense. Like people who have been elected to positions that give them the ability to do something about this understand the issue. And maybe their understanding is trickling down into the community more broadly, and, and we're starting to get that, you know what, our neighborhoods today aren't going to look the same tomorrow, and that's just the way it has to be. Well, I think a lot of it's moving the other way. I think there's lots of folks in the community that are saying, hey, you said you were going to do something. When is that something happening? What is that something? And I think that there is this sort of bottom-up sort of call saying, hey, we've identified this. You said that there's a need. We agree. So like, go, do, act. I think there is this impetus, you know, welling up within the community to say as more and more people are, you know, whether it be them or their kids or their friends or their nieces, nephews, folks in their sphere trying to, you know, navigate housing and seeing how hard it is. I think that just creates more and more momentum. And that gives, you know, politicians more and more permission to be innovative, to be creative, to do something bold. Because the more that the community says, hey, this is what we need, the easier it is for them to respond to that because they don't have to worry about the political backlash of doing innovation or of you know doing something you know outlandish and well outlandish in like a great way bold and audacious sort of planning around housing if the community has said we need bold and audacious plans and so i think we're giving them permission to become a better version of themselves and a more creative version as the community pushes for more and more projects phil i always appreciate the conversations uh it's been a good year of them i'm looking forward to more in 2024 Thank you so much, Mike. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. A Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you as well. And uh, thanks again for this. Stay well. You too. Thank you. Philip Mills is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region. He's been joining us on a monthly basis, and I promise you that will continue into 2024. Because is there a bigger issue in our community today than housing? I would submit to you absolutely not. Are there other big issues? For sure, right? The food insecurity, how we govern and or police ourselves. I mean, that's come under the microscope again 
in recent budget deliberations, but for me, the issue, the issue of the day is housing. And that's why I'm glad we could incorporate this monthly segment into the show so that we can keep updating it. And of course, in between the monthly segments with Phil and Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region, we're talking about housing in a variety of ways, right? We talked about the federal government's catalog that they're going to begin consulting on in early January. We just talked on the show this morning about that 55-story condominium tower coming to downtown Kitchener. There will always be room for those conversations as well. But, you know, something that Phil said just this morning really struck with me, and it struck with me, uh, stuck with me because we just had the conversation at home last night. I don't know what lucky star was shining brightly above me back in 2014 when I bought the house that we still live in today. But And I say I because I was all by myself with just my income at the time. And I tell you what, if that hadn't happened then, I don't know. I really don't know that we would be able to get into the market now. And we're a couple of full-time employed professionals. Like, what would it be like for you? If you hadn't bought then, could you buy now? I'm, I'm curious as to what the market looks like from where you're sitting. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. The number of folks who are now in a position where affordable housing is front and center for them, who have done everything right, who are working hard, who are saving and pinching pennies, and it doesn't matter. It's just all too expensive. And if it's too expensive for them, how much harder it is for the folks who historically needed affordable housing. Philip Mills is the CEO of Habitat for Humanity, Waterloo Region. He has been joining us throughout the year. Can you believe we're like less than two weeks away, like two weeks from today, it's going to be 2024. I, I don't know why this stuff keeps amazing me. It just, it's that feeling of it, right? Time marches on. It goes faster the older you get. I promise you that, you youngins out there. But uh, Phil has been joining us on a regular basis because we like to keep our finger on the pulse of important stories in the community. And I don't think there's a bigger issue slash story right now in this or any other community than housing. So on the third Tuesday of every month at 11.30, we talk housing with Habitat for Humanity Waterloo Region, and we're going to continue doing that through 2024. And, you know, Phil, in talking this morning, kind of looking back at the year that's been, and we look at what affordable means today, and folks that he's talked to who have been frank in admitting that if they hadn't bought whenever it was they bought, they're not sure they would be able to uh, attain housing in the market today. And I put our family in that category. It's a strange thought that, oh my gosh, this house that we've been living in and that we enjoy might be out of our reach financially had we not bought it when we bought it. Let's go to the phones, hear from you. Mark, good morning. Hi, Mike. Um, I'm kind of in the same boat as you, Mike, but I bought my house 21 years ago in Bright Up Park. And if I wouldn't have bought then, Mike, and it was tough back then, actually. I bought it by myself. Uh, payments were high, and but I, I made it through. But if if I wouldn't have done that back 20 years ago, Mike, 21 years ago, I don't know where I'd be here, where I'd be today. Yeah, it almost feels like winning the lottery, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. You know, um, 
I, I just can't believe the prices. Uh, the young people, I don't have a clue how they can afford a home today. I, I, I really don't. Yeah, it's interesting. Mark, appreciate the call. And hey, buddy, nice to hear from you. Merry Christmas. And what I was just going to say to you, too, Mike, Merry Christmas, buddy. Thanks, pal. We'll talk to you soon, okay? okay? Yep. All right. Always nice to hear from Mark. He's a passionate Rangers fan. And every time he mentions, I haven't been to his house. I don't know where exactly he's located. But that area in and around Bright Up Park, it's a little nostalgic for me because I had good friends who lived over that way when I was a much younger man. And we used to have some wicked games of ball hockey. And and I don't mean wicked bad. Like, I mean, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. Uh, with the ball hockey games, the baseball games over on the Diamonds there. It's uh, it's a place that holds a pretty special place in my heart. Even as a, a wee lad. So I was uh, a North Ward boy back in the day. and it And we moved from North Ward over to not far from the Kitchener Memorial Auditorium, but I would still sometimes take my bicycle, and I'm talking like pre-teen years, and ride it all the way back out into North Ward and go through Bright Up Park. And I, I don't know why. It's always nostalgic. So when Mark talks about living in that area, I can just picture, I can picture looking out over the park in the little forested area, and it sounds pretty nice. It seems pretty nice. I guess that's why Mark's such a good guy. All right, we've got to get you an update from the City News Center. And then what got us talking in 2023 we've been taking the opportunity last week and this to replay some of our most meaningful conversations from the past year and the next one we want to talk about striking near and dear to my heart like we were so close to finally achieving something that i thought i still think is long overdue for us to achieve in this community and yet we didn't achieve it what is that thing We'll hear the conversation next on the Mike Farwell Show. Stay with us on City News 570. I do believe that on my very first day on this show, I proclaimed that amalgamation was my mission. Although because... It gets referred to in these here parts as the A word, and it makes people upset. I softened it to unification. Regardless, I still believe, I have long believed, that what this community needs is a good swift kick in the two-tier derriere. I don't like our system of municipal governance, Sam I am. You cannot make me like it, green eggs and ham. Yet here we are at the end of the year, and we're still a two-tier municipality. We had hope because, you see, there was going to be a provincial facilitator appointed to review regional governance. And then Steve Clark went and messed up all kinds of things, was no longer our Minister of Municipal Affairs. And then Paul Calandra came along and said, you know what? Yeah, we're not going to appoint those facilitators after all. And so here we are in the same ding-dang regional governance structure that we've been in pretty much my entire life. Maybe someday, maybe someday, we will make what I believe to be the necessary change to our local government. But for now, it remains the same and a conversation that we were able to have over this past year. I think there's a passionate case for unification, and so too did our guests who joined us 
on this show in advance of that provincial facilitator being appointed when we thought that appointment was going to happen. Tim Jackson is the CEO of Shad Canada. Rose Greensides, the executive director of Social Venture Partners of Waterloo Region. They each join me in studio to help make the case for one city. Amalgamation, is that the word we're talking about? Tim Jackson, good afternoon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having us on. It's great to have you here. Rose, it's nice to see you. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. So, Tim, let me start with you on this because you and I have have talked about this over many years in this community. Why do you think that we might be better off in this community as one city? So I think first thing is the timing is now. This current government has said there's a willingness to look at municipal uh, structure. And so as a community, I think it's, it's up to us to now say we need to change. Uh, change is happening, and so we can either be part of that or we can let it, let it uh, happen around us. We are losing jobs. We're losing opportunities. Uh, when I was a student here, we had automotive parts, textiles, manufacturing. Those plants no longer exist for the most part. And we're losing large plants and large employment to other municipalities. People are going to London. They're going to Hamilton. Because when a large entity says, and you look at Schneider's and Maple Leaf as a perfect example, when they said we're looking to, to build a new plant, we had our municipalities competing with each other instead of saying we're going to work collectively to try to uh, bring these jobs into the region. You also have a government that has rightly said there's a housing crisis. Uh, affordable housing and affordability of housing is a huge issue. We currently have a, a regime in which there are eight different planning departments. And so think about a builder who comes into this community and says, I'm willing to build. I need to figure out where the right place is. They have to go to eight different planning departments to figure out. It's just the logistics just don't make sense. So if we had one municipality, one place that a builder can go, one place that an employer can go, we can address two of our biggest challenges right now, which are jobs and housing. Rose, I see some other areas of the community where this has worked and seems to have worked rather seamlessly. And and I think about what is now the Waterloo Region Community Foundation or what is uh, United Way of Waterloo Region as opposed to individual entities. Where do you see opportunities in this regard? Yeah, so the not-for-profit is my soapbox. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that's the right questions. Um, so we've seen in recent years lots of not-for-profits you know, use the, the word amalgamate, um, and with good success, I may add. Um, and not that I'm speaking for them, but if you were to ask them, I think their answer would be, we can do more good as one. And I don't think that that is any different in this situation. Um, so I've been a not-for-profit leader for 15 years, and what I have heard over and over again from CEOs and executive directors is that they're completely frustrated with having to go to eight councils and get to know close to 60 politicians. Um, And when I look at the region and the cities as a whole, there's no real strategic um, investment strategy to support the social sector. You know, and if we think about the crisis that we're having now, that's like more important now than than ever. We know that even when Hazel McCallion was still the mayor in Mississauga and Bonnie Crombie felt no differently about Mississauga becoming its own entity. So maybe to that end, we're not surprised what happened in Peel Region. But what signal does that send to you, Rose? 
Yeah, I do also feel that that is a little bit like apples and oranges just because of the size of those communities. You know, what what we've heard is that there's no one in the community really um, trying to tell the story that reform is needed. And I feel like I'm screaming off the rooftop like, no, we're here. We're actually trying to create a movement that now is the time, you know, And, and I think that you know, when I think about local politicians that have been around for a really long time, and I have a lot of respect for, for politicians, especially considering the climate, you know, there's an opportunity here to make change, you know, and they may be resistant or reluctant, but we need to look at the generation coming up because, frankly, they're scared about their future and their children's future. So the time is now to make a significant change so we can make this uh, community the best place it, it should be. I think that's a really important choice of words. The time is now. And again, Tim, I'll just reflect on some of the conversations you've had, uh, you and I have had over the years, and I've made no bones about this for a long time now, that I think the time has already passed to do this. What do you think has been holding us back? I think it's just a, it's a tradition and, and historical uh, bias. I think the, the reality is uh, there is no good reason for us not to be uh, one city. We're trying to compete globally. We're trying to compete within Canada. Uh, we are the, the right size. Collectively, we're 600-odd thousand people. Um, it makes sense that if we want to compete with Ottawa, we want to compete with London, we want to compete with Hamilton, we need to just say uh, it's time to, to get together and speak with, with one voice. I understand some of the historical um, issues and, and people talk about community and neighborhoods, um, but people talk about that they, they live in forest hills. They talk about they live in Beechwood. They talk about they live in Laurentian. That doesn't mean those are, need to be separate municipalities. So you don't lose local identity, particularly if you, you follow the example of Toronto and put community planning councils in place or community councils. And so I think the historical arguments as to why we shouldn't just don't hold water today in the sense that we have a crisis. We have a housing crisis. We have an employment crisis. Uh, and we need to be competitive. And this is the way to do it. We have a government that has said there's a willingness to look at municipal reform in seven regions of the, the province. I think it's, uh, it's our responsibility now as a region to stand up and say, we, we hear you. Uh, this is what what makes sense. This is how we're going to protect and, and create a region that will be uh, be here for the future. I've got a 25-year-old son who is struggling to find uh, housing in, in our community. And he's one of one of many of his generation. We need to build houses. We need to build them faster. And, and I think one way to do that is to, to end up with one municipality that can fast-track uh, housing in our community. On the employment piece, Tim, and I'm going to go back to what Rose said a moment ago about the time being now. So so maybe when I was saying this 10 years ago or 15 years ago, maybe it wasn't the time then. But the times have changed and changed dramatically. Again, connected to what you said about Schneiders, for an example. Aren't we now competing with even the St. Thomas's of the world, which just got a huge Volkswagen battery plant. Yeah, and those jobs, imagine if those jobs came here and that tax base came here. That would allow us to address a lot of the social uh, issues that we have. It would allow us to uh, to address some of the housing challenges. But we can't do it when we've got three, four, or eight different uh, economic development departments all competing with each other 
trying to uh, uh, trying to attract those jobs. Even today, when we have one regional, uh, theoretically, a, a regional economic development group, that group has been given direction seven different ways by seven different municipal councils as to what they want that, that group to do. So if you are thinking about bringing a job or a plant into our community or jobs into our community, what are you going to do? You're going to come here and t- try to deal with eight or seven different uh, departments, or are you going to go to London or Ottawa or Hamilton where you only have to deal with one? It seems to me it's pretty obvious choice. So if we want to be competitive, we need to get get out there, speak with one voice. And and the best way to do that is to actually have one municipal government for this region. Rose, have you given any thought at all or presupposed in any way what our municipal structure would or could look like? No, and I think we're trying not to be prescriptive on that. We're not trying to say that, you know, we should dissolve this or have this. We're trying to say that now is a time to have a conversation about what good reform looks like. Um, and I'm surprised you didn't ask me about the Cambridge piece, so I'm going to bring that in. So when you talk <laughs> about, like, you know, why now and, you know, why we didn't before, I hear a lot of rhetoric um, and and loud, I don't think many, about the Cambridge piece. And I'm a proud resident of Cambridge. Um, um, and I'll, I'll punt a question back to you. When someone who lives in Cam- when you ask someone who lives in Cambridge where, to, where they live, what's their what's their response to that? It, it depends on whether or not they're in Preston, Galt, or Hesper. Hundred <laughs> percent. So when Tim talks about neighborhoods, you know, it, it's it's we're already ahead of the game in Cambridge because we say we're from Hesper. I'm from Hesper, Galt, or Preston, and I don't think that's any different. Like Tim was saying, if it's Forest Hill or Laurelwood, um, and I've spent a good amount of time with Cambridge folk, and their concern is not what the name of the city is. Their concern, and I'm going to say our concern because I have four teenage boys at home, our concern is that there's not going to be affordable housing and good paying jobs for our children and our children's children. So that is the concern. Um, We're about to hit a million. That's the projected uh, population. So this, and I'm going to call it a Band-Aid solution because it's exactly what's happening with our current government structure, Um, may have worked in the past, but it's not going to work Uh, when we have a million residents and we really need to move the needle on jobs and homes. Four teenage boys? I do. We should be letting you have a nap. I agree. Yeah, I do this on the side of my desk. (laughs) Okay, so Tim, let's, let's focus on the time being now, the importance of the now, and and how maybe we can engage the community in what I believe is absolutely a necessary conversation. What might that look like? Well, Minister Clark, who's responsible for this municipal reform and the the, uh, the pending appointment of facilitators to regions like Waterloo, uh, came out last week in, in our local newspaper and said, um, we're open to, to, to hearing what, what the people want to have happen in Waterloo Region. We want to hear from you. And so that was part of the reason for, for uh, running an op-ed this week and being on your show was to say to Minister Clark, we're here. We want to engage. We want to have the conversation. We think we have ideas about uh, what the, the future of this region looks like. Um, and so our message to both Premier Ford and to Mr. Clark is this region is ready for change. Uh, change is happening around us. So please let us uh, change with the times. Please let us change so we can be competitive. And uh, there, there's a large group of us in this community that are ready to talk. There are people from the for-profit sector, the nonprofit sector, the healthcare sector, public sector, private sector, all ready to say, Mr. Clark, come or, or we'll come to you and we'll share with you that why we think one uh, amalgamated uh, community is the best way for us to move forward. Uh, another one of the signatories on your op-ed is Lori Payne, who's a Wellesley resident. 
What about the townships, Tim? Yeah, so I think you, you, you cannot have this conversation without meaningfully engaging the townships. Dave Caputo, is a, who's also a signatory to that op-ed, is, is a resident of the townships. And so I think they have to have a voice at the table. And I don't think that means, though, that you can't do municipal reform and, and, and that they, they can't be part of it. You still have to think about services. You still have to think about uh, protecting uh, green space. But you can do it as one, one community saying, so where are we going to have a parkland? Where where are we going to have industrial land? Where are we going to build new homes? Um, and you saw what happened in St. Thomas, where they had to re- reconstruct uh, boundaries. Um, I think you just you put our seven municipalities together, and that's one conversation where we're sitting around one table saying, what do we want for the, the 600 to 800,000 uh, residents of this region? Rose, are you optimistic that we will have the opportunity to kind of be at the table here, as opposed to the minister or the facilitator or the premier coming in and saying this is how it's going to be. I have total faith that Premier Ford wants to do the right thing for our community, you know, and so, um, so yes, I am giving it my all <laughs> to try to really create buzz and interest for people to talk about this. Um, so, yes, I'm completely optimistic. You know, I, I said if this doesn't go through, I don't know, I might move. <laughs> <laughs> and if Cambridge isn't part of the solution, I'm definitely moving. But I really feel like, you know, this is the opportunity and, and we have their ear. It's just about getting across, um, you know, inform- important information. You know, I think what's frustrating for a newish leader like myself is hearing, well, we've tried it and it didn't work. Well, great, but... It's different now. So let's try it with new, fresh blood, new ideas, new thoughts. Let's not talk about what happened in the past. Let's talk about how we need to move forward. We can certainly keep lessons that we've learned in the past, but really move forward this agenda. So I'm very optimistic that the Premier's office will will take us into account. I'm just thinking as you, you talk about how passionate you are about this, and it's so important. You've mentioned to your kids, Rose, Tim, you've done the same thing. And, and I would add this to the conversation for are 59 elected municipal politicians. It's not about us. It's not about us, right? This is about our kids, the next generation. That's what we're trying to do this for. Yeah, those politicians took an oath, an oath to do what was right for the, for the community. And I think this could be their legacy to say it's, it's going to happen. At some point, municipal reform is going to happen in this region. I think we should should say now is the right time for it to happen rather than waiting another 10, 15, 20 years. So I would hope this current group of municipal politicians would, would grasp it and say, we are going to change the destiny of this region. And we have an opportunity to solidify this as our legacy for the future. And I'll just spin that a little bit in saying that I think it's less about where each politician stands. The fight isn't between politicians. The fight is between other municipalities that have an advantage to gain the investment. So we need to put ourselves in the forefront. Uh, So we're ahead of Hamilton, ahead of London, ahead of St. Thomas. Regardless of what the politicians think, it's about how as we as a community can come together to be the front runners for some of these important investments. You both articulate this incredibly well. I hope I hope that this I agree that the time is now. I hope that this is the time because we've tried before. Uh, Thanks for trying again. And thank you both for being here. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Tim Jackson. Rose Greensides. We had so much hope. I feel as though that hope has been dashed again. For now, the question, the rather existential question I was asking earlier today, and by the way, that conversation you just heard was one of those that got us talking in 2023. That was a way back in January of this year. The question I asked this morning, though, and 
I think this would actually be a really interesting bet. What do I have a better chance of in my lifetime? Seeing the Leafs win a Stanley Cup or seeing this region get itself put together as one large municipality? Enough with the two-tier local system. What do I have better odds of seeing in my lifetime? I don't even know which one I'd pick. Goodness, probably the Stanley Cup. We seem to be getting along in spite of ourselves around here. A quick break. Back with your calls. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. There is an opportunity here to make change, you know, and they may be resistant or reluctant, but we need to look at the generation coming up because, frankly, they're scared about their future and their children's future. So the time is now to make a significant change so we can make this community the best place it should be. We had that opportunity earlier this year, but alas... We are still a two-tier municipal system as 2023 comes to an end. Let's go to the phones. Nathan, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine. Um, I'm a resident of Cambridge, and what I'm worried about is that uh, Cambridge is uh, looked over uh, like for big decisions like the ION uh, now. How, how will it be better in the future? Yeah, you know, Nathan, I I hear where you're coming from, and I appreciate the call. I I was saying from the very beginning, for what it's worth, that we should have built the entire system and not left Cambridge out initially, and here we are. And not really left out, but just waited for phase two. And I get it, and I would suggest, or I would submit to you, that we need some more collaborative advocacy from Cambridge. We went a very long time in that city with with this with the idea that it was the uh, the poor stepchild in the region and i don't think that's necessarily true but it helped it helped a former mayor stay elected for a long long time there is something though about that geographic divide right with the 401 in between anyway great point definitely we be something that we have to work on paul good afternoon don't be pushing the button quite yet okay I'm waiting. What I heard, what I heard from your uh, your guests there were this special interest group wants amalgamation. That special group wants amalgamation. Uh, another special interest group wants amalgamation. I never heard what the residents want. And isn't that what matters most? Is it special interest groups or is it the residents? Am I a special interest group? And sometimes I think you are. So go ahead and push that button now. Pushed. Because I know, I know exactly what Paul's going to say. This whole amalgamation thing sucks. Exactly. An update from the City News Center. And then our friends from Social Venture Partners are right here, just on the other side of the glass. They're going big in the year ahead, funding not just one, but three nonprofits in our community will tell you their story coming up. Stay with us on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Well, we've touched on it 
throughout the show today. There is a great deal of need in the community for a variety of reasons. One of the organizations that endeavors to fill some of those gaps and help those in need is Social Venture Partners. And annually, they look at a nonprofit and select it as an investee. But this year, given the depth of the need, there will be three local nonprofits that Social Venture Partners will invest in. Uh, joining us in studio to talk more about that, Alison Kretsch, who's a Social Venture Partner partner and board vice chair. Alison, nice to see you in person. We've talked so many times. Thanks for being here. You too. Thanks for having us. And along with Alison is Maranisa Karodia, the Director of Partnerships and Operations at Social Venture Partners. Uh, Maranisa, good afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you start, Maranisa, just by telling us a little bit more about Social Venture Partners, the work that you do. Absolutely. So Social Venture Partners is a philanthropic organization, but we do more than give just money. So we have partners like Allison who give their time, talent, and treasure. And what that means is there's the funds that come in and we pool them and we provide unrestricted grants to non-for-profits, but we do more than just give away money. Um, so again, Allison's here. So we have partners that really want to give their time and their skills. They want to volunteer um, in a way that they feel like they can really use their skills and give back. And we do that through pro bono capacity building support. So these organizations, these investees that we invest in, um, that could be, and our partners come from a wide range of industries, wide range of skills, and we are able to provide Everything from legal support to strategy to HR, these are generally high ticket items when you go out into the industry to purchase and we're able to provide our investees with those pro bono. Those pro bono. Additionally, many times capacity building is very important, but it's something that can fall by the wayside for non-for-profit organizations. Um, and we're able to really come in and do that wraparound support with our investees. It's one of the things I love most about the model. Funding financially is one thing, but these skills and the time that comes from the donation of them, that pro bono nature of them, I think means so much. Allison, what was it that drew you to SVP? Uh, I'd say I've been a lifelong volunteer, more active, like, you know, in person, um, even as a as a youth and a, and a university student, I was active. And then it was the chance to bring the skills and experience that I that I gained through my post-secondary and for profit uh, work to be able to further help the Waterloo region community. So we're really getting in there and and using those skills and experience to further the great work that the community organizations do and assist them with some of the work that they have a little bit more challenge accessing. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people ask what's in the water in Waterloo and maybe one of the underappreciated things in the water is something that you just touched on and this spirit of volunteerism that you have some pretty deep roots in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just great to get involved. There's wonderful people across the board that we get to work with and see every day and, or many days. And, uh, and it's really great to both be immersed in the, you know, and understanding the real challenges that we have in the, in the community, but more so see all the great people that are coming together to address those challenges and make things better. So Maranisa, why three investees this year? Um, we had an opportunity, and so we have an investment committee, and the investment committee is made uh, comprised of partners, and th- so they review the applications that come in. This year, we had double the number of applications compared to the previous time we ran this, which was 2021, and so we had the funding and the opportunity to do a little bit more. We ha- we've gained some new partners, so we thought 
let's see what else we can do. And the committee looked through the applications and thought we could do three and went for it and selected three organizations this year. What is the criteria that the organizations must meet to, you know, through that application process? So they're um, they're pretty broad. The biggest one is the majority of the work that they do has to happen in Waterloo Region. Uh, this year, in the past, it's always been must be a charitable organization. Uh, this year, we looked at organizations that were non-for-profits that didn't have charitable status but had a fiscal sponsor. And... I think those are the two primary criteria. I think for us, there's nothing deep down, but just must be giving back to the community, either as a non-for-profit, as a charity, was a big part. Yeah. And furthermore, that they are at a point in their sort of life cycle that they need some capacity building support mm-hmm. in in one of sort of many um, areas of, of sort of general business. It could be HR, legal. They might be heading into a big strategic plan, or they might be looking at a, at a large fundraising project or something of that nature. I can only imagine, given double the number of applicants that you mentioned, Marinisa, how difficult the job is of making that final decision. Better you than me. Well, it wasn't me, and that's what I kept saying to the committee. I'm like, (laughs) it's a very difficult decision, and we had plenty of meetings, and there was a lot of discussions, and it was, I know, just talking to the committee members, it was very much a struggle. Like, is there a way we could support all of them? Unfortunately, we can't. But I think the the ones that we selected um, are at a great place for us to be able to really um, come in and work with them. Allison, are you able to share more with us about those three organizations that were selected this year? Yeah, sure. So we have uh, CYPT, which is the acronym for the Children and Youth Planning Table. We have uh, SHOW, which is the acronym for Supportive Housing of Waterloo, and uh, Compass Refugee Centre. So different organizations addressing different challenges within the region, and and we're really excited to start working with them in January. I've already heard from one at Compass Refugee Centre. We've had the opportunity to work with, I guess, all three. I I don't know if work with is the right way, but we've been able to share some of their stories, less on the children and youth planning table. So note to self, do more of that Mm -hmm. in 2024. But uh, Shelley from from one of those organizations that you mentioned, of course, Compass Refugee Centre, has already reached out saying how forward she and her organization are looking to the expertise, insight, mentorship, etc., which I think just shows, Alison, that you kind of struck the right note here (laughs) for sure. Absolutely. And then uh, Supportive Housing of Waterloo, actually, they participate in our in our Perfect Pitch program in 2022. So we know the team there a little bit and are excited to dive a little deeper and, and help that organization a little further through 2024. I'm glad you mentioned Perfect Pitch because what an awesome idea and an awesome night. Maranisa, can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So Perfect Pitch itself, the event that you'll see will be March 5th at Fed Hall. But before we get to March 5th, it's a communication a workshop series that provides non-for-profits the skills to be able to tell their story. A lot of times, non-for-profits know what they do, but they don't necessarily know why they do it. So, And to say that in a succinct manner, so we go through a workshop series, which starts January 16th and there are three workshops plus a rehearsal night before we get before you see what you see on stage and we go through the process of figuring out your why putting together your pitch and really owning the stage and that all culminates in the big night on March 5th uh, where all eight participants will take the stage to tell their story in front of an audience. 
So are you still looking for those participants for the next one? No, that's already full. Yeah. yeah. So to to Marinese's earlier point, we had two times the interest in the investee program. We had three times the interest in Perfect Pitch this year. So we had over 21 uh, applications to review, and we've selected eight. Uh, there's we could have selected them all. Yeah. We could run this program a couple times a year if we had the the necessary support. But we've got eight great organizations to come up and join us on stage on March fifth. Yeah, and, and it must must be so fulfilling to watch these organizations develop through that workshop process and then be there on pitch night on March the fifth. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um it's a real sort of um, networking and collaborative uh, experience. All or eight organizations plus the many dozens of people from SVP will we really come together and support all of the groups and then of course the ticket price so we have an audience um, capacity of 400 people at Fed Hall and each and every ticket the uh, audience member will choose which organization they want that full ticket price to be redirected to so it's very collaborative very supportive it's a it's an incredible program to be a part of I love it and I love the way there's kind of just that when you use collaboration I think it's the best word but it just continues to give back within the community Maranisa where can we find out more can we start getting tickets already for pitch night Perfect pitch. Uh, pitch night will happen early January. It's almost there, but you can check out our website at svpwr.org. And our socials are all svpwr, so you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. I think we're also on Facebook, correct? Um, but yes, svpwr.org. All right, and watch for svpwr on all of the various socials. Love the work that you do. Thank you so much for, for doing that work in our community and making time for our show here this afternoon. Thanks for having having us. us. Allison Kretsch, uh, Social Venture Partner and Board Vice Chair. Maranisa Karodia, the Director of Partnerships and Operations at Social Venture Partners. Check them out online, svpwr.org. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. It is that time of the program. Uh, We're 14 minutes away from 1 o'clock. At 1, of course, you get an update from the City News Centre. And then Rob Snow, now you know, coming up just after that. We always leave room at the end of our show for what I refer to as parting shots. If you've got one, take it. So maybe it's just, just that. You want to take a shot at me? Go right ahead. See if I care. Got a couple days left before Christmas break. I can take it. Uh, Or, more to the point, if there was an issue we talked about that you didn't get to share your thoughts on earlier, you can do that now. Or anything else that happens to be on your mind. Maybe it leads to a uh, future conversation here on the show. Also, I'll just throw this out there because I did all the hard work. I started the show. Listen to me pat myself on the back. That's because nobody else around here will do it. Uh, I started the show yesterday talking about it because I was... Starting a little bit late, I said, I'm so sorry, I did all this work, and we're going to talk about this during the show, because when the show starts, it's like, oh, there's four hours, we're going to do all kinds of things, and then the show takes on a life of its own, and I never got to it. So I promised that I would get to it here. If you have a favorite Christmas song, not a carol, but a song that you love hearing at Christmas time, let's see if it matches the very best seven according to... To critics. So if you want to share or even guess at what their seven are, by all means, 
take advantage of this opportunity. 519-570-2545. Star 570-1800-570-5715. Like, what's the Christmas song? Not carol. We're not doing carols here. But the Christmas songs, you know, like the ones you would hear on Chime 96.7 playing all Christmas music. What song is it that you just don't get sick of hearing? Mine certainly makes the list. Anyway, we'll get to that in a bit. Right now, let's go to the phones. Kyle, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Who's got a big red cherry nose? Rudolph. Santa's got a big red cherry nose. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> That's a song that I never get re- re- uh, tired of. Must be Santa. Must be Santa. Must be Santa. But, but um, I just want to go back to the Ukraine war thing. Sure. Um, the thing that struck me the most, it's not just about the Ukraine war. It's the advancements that have happened during not just the Ukrainian war, but some of the wars that happened, um, you know, the First World War, the Second World War. I mean, if you really think about it, you know, the Wright brothers, their first flight was in like 1902 or 8 or something like that. It's early 1900s for sure. And then within, you know, 15 years, we had stop with camels and biplanes with uh, guns and they they figured out how to shoot a gun you know but it was it was delayed so that way it doesn't hit the propeller and then in world war ii we had advancements of the jet engine that was you know becoming in late during the world war ii and and now you look at it and now in our current lifetime and drones are the big thing right like some guy could sit in his basement have a drone and you know eat a mcdonald's while well, you know, these other guys are fighting him off and stuff like 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 the how fast things happen when, you know, there's always a downfall uh, uh, to the war. But, you know, like like I look back at now, World War Two didn't happen. We have the jet engine as fast as we did. Right. So I just thought that was interesting. there, Mike, thanks a lot. All right, Kyle. Appreciate that. Yeah. You know what? It's the very impersonal nature of war, isn't it? You used to have to stab somebody with a bayonet. Get that close. Right to stab them with the bayonet. And now, Kyle's right. You can do it from your basement with a f- takeout meal, fast food, while you're operating a drone and ordering that drone to strike an enemy target. It's interesting. I, I might be so bold in my sci-fi kind of brain to turn it into the very impersonal nature of our world these days. When's the last time you actually phoned somebody instead of just texting them? But that's perhaps a whole other conversation. Isn't it interesting that Kyle refers back to our conversation about the war. I'm reminded of a couple of things. One is a piece I read in the paper this morning. Uh, It was a shared experience of a couple of friends who hadn't seen one another getting together for a coffee in a cafe, and the one expressed how excited she was for the holidays, but they were at a cafe in Ukraine, and her friend was like, well, how can you possibly be when... Our neighbors, our relatives are in ditches, in trenches, fighting a war right now. And it was just an interesting perspective. Uh, The other connection, interesting that Kyle would bring up the war during parting shots here. According to the experts, the seventh most popular, best, according to a variety of reasons they have come up with, Christmas song is none other than... How about it? 
And that is the one that I will never, ever get tired of. Happy Christmas. War is over. And just think, what are we talking now? 60 plus years? Maybe not quite that many. 50 anyway, since that one came out with John Lennon. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by choir. Yeah, Nat King Cole. And folks dressed up like Eskimos. In at number six. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. That is also one of my favorites. I think, I don't know, I must be getting sentimental in my old age. I can listen to all of these things all the time. Little baby, please come home. Christmas baby, please come home. Number five on the list of the seven very best Christmas songs you'll ever hear. What do experts know anyway? But I think they're three for three, seven, six through five. Grant, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon. You're going to be so bored when you off on holidays. Am I? I you, I, no. No hockey. I can't watch hockey. Uh, no Rangers. I think the Rangers should play twenty four seven, and you should you should look up sixty minutes uh, this past Sunday. They had a nice story about this uh, family getting getting their mother back from I think it was Ukraine or Gaza, and her and now she wants to bring back her. Oh, is it her, her aunt? I can't remember. So it it turned out to be a, a very good story. All right, Grant, I appreciate that. And fear not, I have got the uh, World Juniors to keep me entertained over the holidays. And the Kitchener Rangers may not play over Christmas and Boxing Day, but they come back on the 29th, so don't worry about that. Mark, good afternoon. Hi again, Mike. Hi again, Mark. Mike, I I, I love that uh, John Lennon song. Uh, I know, so do song. I. That that's that is absolutely my favorite. Is it? You can't get it's, sick of it, eh? It's just beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I've got one for you, Mike. Okay. Okay, I'm going to actually sing it. Is that okay? Absolutely, it's okay. The, the the better the song, the better the voice. Okay, here we go. Okay. Good King Wenceslas last looked out on the feast of Stephen. Grass was clean and sharpened out on the feast of Stephen. How sure are you about those lyrics? I'm not sure. But But anyway, uh, happy green Christmas, everybody, Uh, to all your listeners. Thank you very much, Mark. I believe that was supposed to be some rendition of Good King Wenceslas, which I don't even know who a King Wenceslas is, so keep that in mind. Uh, number four on the list of the very best Christmas songs, according to the quote-unquote experts. They got cars, big as bars, they got rivers of gold, but the wind goes right through. 
How about the fairy tale of New York by the Pogues featuring none other than Christy McCall? Well done. I didn't know the song until I unearthed it yesterday. However, you just heard Mark say he's wishing you a very green Christmas. You knew this song had to come in on our list at number three, right? So, a couple of things here. The movie was just on the other day. Good-looking guy, that Bing Crosby. Good-looking dude. And what a beautiful movie. What a beautiful movie. Number two on the list of Christmas songs you'll just never get tired of. I think I might already be tired of this one, but I was never a big wham guy. Okay? Sorry, George Michael. Yeah, okay. I'm a little bit meh on it, but that's okay. Because everybody knows what the number one Christmas song is. You'll never get sick of hearing it. And somehow she turned a rather mediocre pop career into a forever hit with this. Was that was that unkind? Calling Mariah Carey's career mediocre? Probably. Girl can belt out a tune, and all I want for Christmas is you, the very best, according to the experts. And there you have it. We're out of time. Now you know with Rob Snow is coming up. Devin Robertson is our guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Until tomorrow at 9, bye for now.